I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, exposing the deceptive nature of government bionic. It's more foreshadowing because we have this week uh, a tremendous guest. Coming back for his second visit uh, after being here in 2009, we have Judge Andrew DiPolitano, the mm-hmm. author of the new book, Lies the Government Told You. And we'll be talking about exposing the innate deceptive nature of government. Uh, fantastic guest, really embodies a lot of what we talk about here. And yeah. let's say we get on to the... Uh, let's, let's roll tape. Okay, here's Judge Impolitano. We'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, not believing the lies the government told me. Bionic. <laughs> here goes that foreshadowing again by uh, our old friend Tom Bionic yep. here. Uh, we have an old friend of ours. Uh, we wish he was closer, wish he was a next-door neighbor to us. Uh, a very distinguished gentleman who's had the pleasure of being, uh, we've had him on one time before here, just about a year ago, and he's back again because he has a new extremely important book that everyone needs to get. We have Judge Andrew DiPolitano, the author of the new book, Lies the Government Told You, and we're talking about the topic of exposing the innate deceptive nature of government. Uh, Judge, I want to tell you, it's so great to have you back on the show is one of our favorite guests we can identify with. Well, it's great to be back with you, and I deeply appreciate the time you've given me. Well, even if you did refer to me as a stinker during your last well, visit. I, I thought it was the both of us he called stinkers. <laughs> I don't remember what you did or said that prompted me to say that, but my grandmother used to use that as an indication of affection. Okay. Oh, well, good. All right. Good. Yeah. I like to hear that. The only worst thing I was ever called was Dr. Futile instead of Dr. Future here. So, uh, This time we are spotlighting your new book, Lies the Government Told You, Myth, Power, and Deception in American History. And let me just say that this book is a comprehensive Bible, uh, I've had the pleasure of reading it, as a near-exhaustive dear, uh, discourse on a full range of broad topics of which our government historically and continues to lie and deceive us about for their own purposes of power consolidation. Uh, in our own brief time today, we will only be able to discuss a few of these topics, or the lies as you call them and list them, which includes the law and justice, equality, rights of individuals, and limited rights of governments, the war on drugs, the war on people in general, and many other topics. This book, I believe, is essential for our audience, not only for them to get for themselves, but to buy multiple copies of as the most effective means to wake up their friends, family, and neighbors from a voice they trust. And I truly mean what I say here. And to, be, to begin our discussion, I, can I ask you why you decided it was important to tell this particular story right now? Because I became so frustrated uh, with government lies, because I became so uh, aggravated with government decisions uh, made by innocent people on the basis of, uh, of falsehoods. I mean, in, in, in 1964, when Barry Goldwater ran against LBJ, Goldwater was the, was the warmonger and LBJ was the peace candidate. Two years later, we learned that before 64, LBJ was planning to ramp up the war in Vietnam. Question, would he have defeated Barry Goldwater had people known the truth about him? George Bush concocted the reasons for us entering into the war in Iraq. That wasn't a just 
or a moral war. There were no weapons of mass destruction. He lied about whether or not he was torturing people. He lied about whether or not he was listening to the phone conversations of innocent Americans without search warrants. Would he have defeated John Kerry in 2004 had Americans known about it? For, for years, this has frustrated me. And the frustration reached a peak during my years on the bench in New Jersey when it sort of became fashionable or I see I sensed that it was fashionable for the government to lie and for people to accept those lies. And though this is my fifth book, and, and I'm happy to tell you uh, it has become a New York Times uh, bestseller, it's the Great. one that I always wanted to write. Why does the government lie? Why do we expect it to lie? And why do we let it get away with these lies? Mm, amazing. Well, I hope in your next books you'll be a little bit bolder and make a stronger stand. <laughs> uh, there is some strong language in there, but, uh, but you know, the truth always prevails. People might not like it. People may try to hide it. People may try to avoid it and cover it up, but it has a way of ultimately revealing its head because mm -hmm. it's the natural order of things for people to know the truth and be given the opportunity to accept it or reject it. Mm -hmm. Those of us who are blessed with faith know the truth when we see it and we can accept it. Those who have lost their faith accept falsehood for truth. And those who aren't interested in a faith don't care about the difference between falsehood and truth. Amen, brother. Wow. Uh, you know, it's funny you brought that up. I'm glad you did because we're a Christian show here and we take a faith-based view. Uh, and we talk much about uh, this being an ancient uh, wisdom that's talked about in the Bible in Revelation 18 where it says that the great kings of the earth and the great merchants of the earth conspire together. And it says that they deceive the nations of the earth. So this is a long-time uh, activity, and I think you established that in your book as well, that this goes back a long way. W one of the things that really jumped out to me in your book, it discusses the lies our government told us to get into a number of wars over our history to further their aims of power. And, of course, wars are some of the most dramatic things they can do because it results in rampant loss of life of the citizens. Oh, can sure. I mean, war is the health of the state. And during war, people will willingly pay more taxes. People will willingly give up their future, will, will, will give up their property. People will give up their liberty. People will give up their lives if they believe uh, that the war is just. I believe that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was so anxious to get us into World War II, a, a war that was a good war, a war that liberated innocent people from the most horrific oppression that the world has known, though, of course, it spawned more repression with communism. We can talk mm -hmm. about that later. But instead of telling the truth to the American people, instead of doing it the hard way, I believe he knowingly maneuvered the Japanese into bombing Pearl Harbor. He stripped us of our defenses. He knew they were coming. He let 2,700 innocent American uh, soldiers and sailors become incinerated in ships on December 7, 1941, so that he could change public opinion and enter us into World War II. Should we have been in World War II? Absolutely. Did it justify the murder of 2,700 American uh, military service personnel? Of course not. Would FDR have been reelected in 1944 had the public known that he caused Pearl Harbor? He probably would have been impeached before the election of 1944 had the public known that. 
and the public is responsible to know that kind of information, correct? The, pub- the public is, and, and I, I tell this story in the book at the very outset of the, um, of the introduction. When I told friends that I was writing a book about government lies, people would frequently joke, how long is it? And I would say about 4,000 pages, and they would say, you were able to get all the lies in 4,000 pages? <laughs> of course, it's not that long. The publishers made me stop at page 300, but it, it, it shows you the reputation that the government has for lying and how we take it for granted that the government will do this in order to get its way. And, and some of the lies are monumental, like uh, the examples I've given you with FDR right. and LBJ and George W. Bush. Some of them are small, smaller lies, and they affect fewer people, but just as profoundly. Another story I tell in the book is a simple conversation that Martha Stewart is having with an FBI agent in her lawyer's office. And she says to the FBI agent, am I a target of your investigation? And he says, no. And then he says to her, did you... Um, order the sale of a certain stock on a certain day. And she says, yes. Now, he lied to her, Mm -hmm. and she lied to him. They each told a lie about a material issue. In fact, she was a target of a federal investigation, and in fact, she did not place the stock order as she said she had. He got a promotion in the FBI, Mm -hmm. and she went to jail for six months. Now, are agents of the government morally different from the rest of us, that they may lie with impunity, but when we lie to them, we can go to jail? This is an example of an argument that the court wouldn't even let her lawyers make at the time of her jury trial, because we so accept the fact that the government mm-hmm. can lie. And if you, your listeners don't want to believe me on this, there are at least a half dozen Supreme Court opinions, Dr. Bennett, in which the Supreme Court has authorized the government to lie to us no matter what the consequences may be. So if the FBI agent involved in this case were on this conversation now, he would probably acknowledge that he lied. Well, he would have to. It'd, it'd be, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, a, it's a recorded fact, what he said, and that it was a profound untrue untruth, and would offer to do it again because the culture of our government fosters, encourages, and immunizes employees of the government when they lie. Mm-hmm. And innocent people suffer for it. Now, she shouldn't have lied to him, but he shouldn't have lied to her because if he had told her the truth, if he had said, yes, you are a target of our investigation, the conversation would have stopped and her lawyer would have mm-hmm. said, okay, Mr. FBI agent, since she's a target of your investigation, we're not going to speak to you. But by lying to her, he got her to say things that she had a legal right not to say. I don't defend her lying. Right. I don't defend the stock trading. I don't defend whatever happened with her stock. But the point is they each did the same thing. One was rewarded. The other was punished. The only difference between them is that the one who was rewarded worked for the government and the one who was punished was a target of the government. Right, and got her to incriminate herself, basically. Precisely, precisely. You know, this this kind of stuff has been going on for just so long. It's such a part of our culture that I, I acknowledge, I don't remember now if it's in the introduction or the conclusion, I think it's the conclusion, that I am angry over the level of lying mm-hmm. that people expect the government to engage in. It should be a crime 
for mm-hmm. members of the government to lie to us because right. it induces us to make a decision on the basis of untruths. And that makes us give power to people who are unworthy of it. And then when we find out years later that they lied, there's nothing we can do about it. That's right. And meantime, people are dying because of this. That's what mm-hmm. sort of drives me nuts is, you know, you hit upon the idea of the of the uh, uh, so many people sort of accepting it. And, you know, people just go and they go, oh, well, well, yeah. a bunch of people died. It's, oh, well, well, you're right. I yeah, mean, you're right. I it's mean, crazy. The, the, the war in Iraq is profoundly immoral and profoundly unlawful. I mean, think about it. The president led the government and the nation, uh, the Congress and the nation to believe that if we didn't attack Saddam Hussein, he would either attack Israel or attack us with weapons that he had that he was able to do it, the so-called WMDs, weapons of Mm -hmm. mass destruction. We now know that he didn't have them, and we now know that the government knew or ought to have known that he didn't have them. As a result of that lie, we have lost 5,000 Americans, we have lost 500,000 Iraqis, 3 million Iraqis have fled their country, and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in cash and in property has been destroyed, never to be retrieved, and never to be returned. That's just the American loss, never mind the Iraqi loss. So the, the loss is irretrievable. The, the, the unlawfulness of this is it's not a declaration of war. It's an authorization to use military force. This will let every future American president kill whoever he wants or she wants as long as the American president can claim that this is being done to keep us safe from terrorism. If we had declared war on Iraq or war on al-Qaeda or war on bin Laden or war on whomever they think uh, has, has attacked us, there would be a human being or, a, or an authority figure to surrender. But when we declare war on an idea or an ideology like terrorism, there is no one to surrender, and the president can claim these war powers until the Congress takes them back from them. That's mm-hmm. the hideous nature of how lies, as you said, breed death and destruction, and then take on a life of their own. Well, we started the war. We have to finish it. Mm-hmm. Excellent point. When you when you have vague terms, I, I, I would suspect that it serves the interest of the powers that be that initiate it to extend it. But I have to ask you something here, Judge, related to this. The, the, the extensive data on war, since we've brought this up again, that you confirm in your book... Uh, shines a light on sort of the elephant in the room that we cannot ignore, uh, something more current. If our government has viewed war throughout history as an opportunity to expand its power and, and will deceive us to enter into it, as, as you will document over a number of incidents over our history, we recently began such a war to produce the War on Terror, the Patriot Act, Guantanamo Bay, and other usurpations of power. Given the history uh, you've shared in your book, of our history and our government's actions, wouldn't it be prudent for us to be suspicious of the official government story of what happened on the day of 911 yes, in 2001? Yes, it would. We should be suspicious of whatever the government tells us. And I'll give you an example of why. Uh, on November 24, 1963, if someone had suggested that agents of the government had been involved in the murder of the president the day before, They would have either been silenced if they suggested it as an authority figure or with some evidence, or they would have been laughed at as crackpots. Today, 40 years later, it is taken for granted 
that the government was involved in some way in the assassination of JFK. I have friends who are in the intelligence community who will swear to me on a Bible that their predecessors in the intelligence community plotted, planned, and participated uh, in his execution. People say, well, you know what? He's dead. His family is dead. It's too late. The people who did it are probably dead. I suspect we will have an attitude like that about 9-11 and at some point in the future. And all of that is because the government lies and we let them get away with the lying and lying has become part of our culture and there's and the government is immunized when it does it and we expect them to do it again and don't in, stop now man <laughs> keep going <laughs> in, in, that, in that case you cite there was a 911 commission that the majority of the people admitted that the government lied and was not forthcoming even to answer uh court uh, you know request for this information uh, and, and so would you agree that there hasn't been a sufficient study of this, even the circumstances of the torture, Guantanamo Bay and things like oh, this? Oh, absolutely. Uh, listen, I, I visited Guantanamo Bay, and I left the original uh, group that I was with and began to speak, uh, as I was with journalists, uh, print and, uh, and broadcast and radio, and I began to speak to FBI agents who said to me, you know, you, you wouldn't believe what we found here when we got here. Uh, the torture that was going on and was kept from the American people was only stopped because the Justice Department decided to send FBI agents down here and restrain the American military from what it was doing. Totally, wholly, and completely untrained people, not sophisticated intelligence agents, but untrained thugs in the military were doing things that were horrific and were criminal and should be prosecuted. But the condition of our coming here was the people who did this stuff can't be prosecuted once uh, once we find it. Look, people look the other way when they're afraid. If the government tells lies to scare them, they will look the other way. Question, how much debate was there on the Patriot Act? Answer, in the House of Representatives, none. Question, how much time did members of the House of Representatives have to read the Patriot Act before they voted on it? Answer, 15 minutes. Question, how long is it? 315 pages. How long does it take to read? About 20 hours, because it amends the criminal code of the United States. You have to have the criminal code in front of you, which is about the, the equivalent of two or three sets of Encyclopedia Britannica, and you have to go into each page of the criminal code and see what's been amended. The essence of the Patriot Act permits federal agents to write their own search warrants. We fought a revolution against a British monarch and parliament because it authorized their soldiers to write their own search warrants and come into our homes without a, a judge authorizing it. We wrote a Constitution, which said this shall not happen in America. If the government has a target, no matter how guilty is the target, no matter how widespread is the belief in the guilt of the target, no matter how accurate is the belief in the guilt of the target, no matter how evil the target may be, the government must go to a neutral judge to invade the target's premises. Not anymore after the Patriot Act, and very few people complained about it because the government scared us by lying to us. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Given this information is now available, and you really give a comprehensive amount, it should be a textbook for people, when our listeners are now armed with the knowledge that you have in your book across economic issues, the wide breadth of what you cover and their rights, what can they do constructively with that information? 
Well, one of the things they need to do is to stay on top of their uh, their members of Congress so that members of Congress are compelled to explain why they did, what they did, and how they did it. I mean, we just witnessed a spectacle in Washington, D.C., in which almost, not quite, almost, health care uh, socialization came about, not only because people didn't read it, but because people didn't vote on it. They had prepared some kind of a ruse by which they can claim to have voted on something which, in fact, they never voted on. They backed down on that. We know they didn't read it because it turns out today that some of the benefits that were supposed to kick in immediately don't kick in until 2014. So we know the very people who propagated this thing, who pushed it through, who used every parliamentary trick in the book, carrots and sticks, threats and rewards to members of Congress to get them to vote for it, themselves hadn't even read it. So it's difficult for, for individuals to, to regulate the government when the government does that. But every person who voted for the Patriot Act and is still in the Congress, and every person who voted for health care and is still in, and is running for re-election, and every person who's ever voted for litigation, which is not, for legislation, forgive me, uh, which is not directly authorized by the Constitution, should be voted out of office. And laws should be enacted which establish term limits. And we should abolish the IRS because we are not a bottomless pit of cash for the government. We should starve it back down mm -hmm. into the footprint that the Constitution created for it. The chains, as Jefferson said, by which the federal government was to be held in place through the Constitution. Now, can these things happen overnight? No. I spoke to a couple of hundred people in Florida last night, and I said, you know, you have the power to abolish the IRS. No one even realized the fact that a simple vote in Congress could stop the ability of the government to tap our pocketbooks as if we were sheep and as if we were a bottomless pit. People are so accustomed to the government taking their liberty and their property, they think it must continue into the future. And they don't realize that when people get angry because of what the government has been doing to us, we still have the vote and we still have the power to stop it. Are there other things aside from the ballot box we can do? to also further this Well, education is very important. The type of thing that you're doing, the type of thing that I attempt to do uh, on Fox. Fox gives me a wonderful platform and a wonderful megaphone and terrific support and terrific backup from uh, my colleagues and from my bosses there to explain to the American people the direct, the indirect, and the subtle ways in which liberty is taken away from them. I mean, the assault by the federal government on the rights of the states has come from the most unlikely of sources. It's come from across the board. One of, one of the ways the federal government has taken powers away from the states is to bribe them. Mm -hmm. um, you can't make this stuff up. Have you ever wondered why the blood alcohol content in your blood sufficient to trigger a drunk driving prosecution is the same in every state? Have you ever wondered why the speed limits are the same in every state? Wouldn't it be an unbelievable coincidence right, if all right. 50 states on their own enacted the same, the same statutes? Well, they didn't. The feds came to them and said, we don't have the power to change these laws, but here's what we'll do. We'll give to each state, and they came up with a formula, X uh, million dollars. In some states, it was hundreds of millions to repave your highways. And in return for repaving your highways, you change the speed limits and you change the blood alcohol content laws. So the states took this money and gave away some of their sovereignty in deference to the federal will. Now, who was 
the radical leftist president who presided over this loss of state sovereignty, a former governor of California by the name of Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. So the lust for power knows no limit, even when one of the great presidents of our day who once said government isn't the solution to the problem, government is the problem, even when he can be seduced to assault state sovereignty by the most unsavory of means, you can see how difficult it is to restrain people in the government. My friend Lou Rockwell reminds right. me of, uh, of what St. Augustine called it, libido dominandi, the lust to dominate. That's what people in government have, and we must send people to the government who don't have this lust. That's right. We have about uh, two minutes left, uh, and I want to conclude with finding out how people can get your book. But can you comment very quickly about our our, our listeners who are people of faith uh, on any kind of special responsibilities they have? They they revere God and the Bible, uh, but they've tolerated this behavior from their government. Do they have any particular duties and responsibilities to their fellow citizens or families? They, they, they do, under the virtue of charity. They have a moral obligation to call out the government when it violates the natural law, when it violates the natural rights of individuals, and when it violates the moral law. Just because something is legal doesn't mean it is moral. Abortion is legal. It is still murder. It is still the destruction of innocent human beings. And every time the government authorizes that, people of faith, especially those who accept basic Judeo-Christian values, have a moral obligation under the rubric of charity to expose this. It is charitable to your neighbor to expose to him how the government is stealing his liberty and stealing his property. Another excellent new argument for us in the cause. Uh, in closing, how can our listeners get your book and keep up with your further work? Well, they can go to Judge Knapp at foxnews.com, J-U-D-G-E-N-A-P. They can go to amazon.com and get the book, you know, virtually, uh, virtually overnight. Uh, soon Fox will be announcing my show on the Fox Business Network called uh, Freedom Watch. Right now, Freedom Watch is on the Internet, but soon you'll be able to see it on the regular uh, old television. Uh, and the message just keeps expanding in part because uh, wonderful friends like you give me a wonderful forum like you've just given me. Well, we understand you have a lot of free time, and when you have that free time, you're welcome <laughs> to drop by. God uh, bless you. i got to find an excuse to come to the volunteer state. Yeah, well, there you go. There'll be a red carpet and trumpets waiting for you when you get here. Yep. Thank you, Dr. Penn. It's a pleasure, God, sir. God bless you, Judge. Thank you so much for your service for all of us. And Thank we appreciate you. It. And come back again soon. You got it. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, pumped up by Andrew Napolitano, Bionic. Boy, he knows how to give an interview in a short period of time, doesn't it's he? He's like, here it comes. It's coming right. He's like a quote machine. Could Put you, a quarter in. Ding, here it goes. Could you believe what he said about uh, 911? Uh, uh, that was pretty heavy. So that, many people so many people just sort of throw the book out the window when it comes to 9-11. Yeah. They go, all this other stuff happened in history, yeah. but 9-11 is sick. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to touch third rail. Yeah. Judge Napolitano is fearless yeah. because he knows truths on his side. Somebody else fearless is Murph. He can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. 
Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, the rest of this week, we're going to be talking about this book and some of the findings in it, correct? Great, I think so. Okay, well, until then, we come back tomorrow for our discussion, and we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I, am, of course, am Tom, uh, the man with the middle name, Bionic. Well, we're back for a second day this week on the Future Quake Show. Oh, snap. The first day we had with us a great time with yeah. Judge Andrew DiPolitano. We have uh, got to get him visit. in for like a full full two weeks. Do you think if time. we kidnapped him or something like that and yeah. held him against his will? Yeah, it'd be hard to get around some of the people that work at Fox Network. I yeah, think, like a Guantanamo really kind of place. Yeah, yeah, we we'll just keep him in a cage, more like Camp Greyhound during Katrina. Well, we love the time spent with him. We talked about his new book out, Lies mm-hmm. the Government Told You, mm-hmm. Myth, Power, and Deception in American History. Mm-hmm. And because of this very situation that uh, we couldn't have him for an entire week, mm-hmm. I think you had the great idea, since there's so much fantastic information in this book, there was no way we could ask him about all of it, mm-hmm. that you and I had a little discourse about some of the content, maybe mm-hmm. uh, amplify a little bit mm-hmm. uh, some of the information there. I think it would be worthwhile for our listeners to hear about it. Uh, it's been sort of a hectic week for us coming back from the last day's 2010 conference, yeah. which I'm, we'll, we'll be able to talk about that on Friday. Yeah. But uh, it gives us a chance, as a result, to have sort of a, a relaxed, sort of low-key uh, kind of discussion. Yeah. This is going to be Just so mellow. formal. We're going to uh, take uh, thumb through the book, some key passages, read mm-hmm. them, and have a little discussion. We know a lot of our listeners tell us they like these kind of shows, so mm-hmm. uh, we'll just proceed ahead if that's okay with you. Well, I mean, I don't know about you, but I believe everything my government tells me. Oh, do you really? Yeah. You must have been listening to the future quake. <laughs> well, can I start in his book by just mentioning a few things out of yeah, out of, out of his introduction and okay, just get some good. thoughts from you on it? Okay. Uh, he says here early, he says uh, in his book, Lies the Government Told You, he says, in a free society, we expect the government to wrestle with lies as well. But it does not. It is not concerned with truth. Mm-hmm. The government lies to us regularly, consistently, systematically, and daily on matters great and small, but it prosecutes and jail those who lies to it. Mm-hmm. For example, a male drug dealer with a heavy foreign accent minimal understanding of English stupidly tells an FBI agent that his name is Nancy Reagan, and he's arrested, prosecuted, and jailed for lying to the government. Another FBI agent tells the cultural guru Martha Stewart in an informal conversation in the presence of others that she is not the target of a federal criminal probe, and she replies that, that she did not tell, sell a certain stock on a certain day. They both lied, but she went to jail and the FBI agent kept his job. Yeah. Isn't that a fascinating situation that our government really has no compunction about lying, do they? No. Well, uh, one of the things that we've talked about and read here, and I, I guess it should be no no huge thing to the people that listen to Future Quake regularly, but that the government in many cases, is sort of expected to lie. And really, mm-hmm. what, what's even more interesting is that it's so common and prevalent that 
we as a society don't even we sort of view it as normal. Yeah. Like the government's lying to well, us. It's, it's no big deal. It's part of what they got to do. Yeah. It's part of getting it's the just job. Part right? of their part of their stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, even it, though, if you look at the color of law, everybody from you know the president to the garbage man has is under a moral compunction to right. tell the truth in all situations. And the government never has to. Yeah. And never held accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the judge had a different view himself personally. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, he says, throughout this book, I will suggest answers to these and similar questions. As I do so, you'll see I, I, a chip on my shoulder. I am angry that we allow the government to lie to us, mm-hmm. that we expect it to do so, mm-hmm. and even take comfort in the illusions created thereby. Hmm. Do, do you think that the American people are slowly catching on to this and starting to get angry and saying they no longer accept these lies about bailouts and these no, kind of things? You know, that's an interesting thing. It seems like in my sort of personal, personal political uh, cosmology, you've got uh, one party. You've got a party of uh, Republicans that believe in deficit spending and assaulting civil rights under the color of, you know, mm-hmm. coloring it by freedom, coloring it with freedom, and then coloring it with, uh, um, you know, uh, well, we just this has to happen because it just it just does, and you're mm-hmm. a terrorist if you don't. Uh, and then you have a Democratic Party who also believes in big government uh, and believes in wage transfer, you know, taxes through wage transfers and, uh, you know, uh, heavy, right. just heavy taxes in general. Right. Um, so, yeah, uh, there was a point to that. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, happens all the time on future break. Yeah. Uh, he, he goes on further. He says, uh, <clears throat> excuse my voice, I've had this for several months. Mm-hmm. It says, government lies take on a life of their own since they breed more lies to substantiate the original lies. Mm-hmm. That's what happens in all our lives, actually. Yeah. Government lies induce government lawbreaking, and government lawbreaking means someone is suffering a loss of life, mm-hmm. liberty, or property because of some event not caused by the person suffering. And it also means that the lawbreaker walks free in the corridors of power to strike again. Mm-hmm. Government lies are a direct assault on freedom because if believed, if accepted as truth, the lies dupe individuals into making choices they would not make were the truth known. You know, this reminds me. It interests me. Those are fundamental points. Yeah. One of the things that in, has always interested me about the idea of lying and telling the truth uh, as a Christian mm-hmm. is that uh, uh, telling the truth gets you make it get you where you want to go, but you have it's slowly and methodical. Right. And, you know, building a reputation, whereas lying. It's sort of like getting into the injection seat, hit the button, and just fly off mm-hmm. into the, the stratosphere. Um, and it, I don't know why, but I always, I'm always reminded of, when comparing these two things, I'm always reminded of the angel of the Lord mentioned in Exodus, where uh, he talks about, you know, if you do all these things, this angel of the Lord will go before you, and uh, I won't, you know, I'm going to be so, not only am I going to be good, and I'm going to, you know, send hornets before mm-hmm. you and do all of these things and ride with you. But I'm not going to cast your enemies out in one season, lest because you're going to take over their position. But we don't want their we don't want their uh, their fields to lie fallow, mm-hmm. and so the land to be desolate. And so, in this whole idea of lying versus, uh, uh, you know, the government lying versus telling the truth, uh, it's very interesting to see that dichotomy mm-hmm. uh, on display. You know, um, one of the things I'd want people to consider 
is that when all of you out there, when you hear something that the government is lying about, and his supposition here, I believe, is correct, that somebody pays the price for that lie down the line. Mm -hmm. And it's an innocent party. It may not be directly. It may take a few steps Mm -hmm. before somebody's holding a bag. Mm -hmm. But when you just sort of shrug your shoulders, you hear it on the news, move on, Mm -hmm. you almost become a type of accessory to an injustice that's happened to somebody. Mm -hmm. And it just may come around being somebody you know or yourself. I'm reminded to one of the kings of Israel where they got, they did what was right in the Lord, but Mm -hmm. they didn't get rid of the... They didn't get rid of the astra poles and all of that right, stuff in the right. land, and so God said, "You did good, but I'm still going to curse you because you didn't do, mm-hmm. you didn't go all the way." Right, right. You know? you've, you've got a duty for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he says further. He says, "Government lies seduce us into surrendering freedom and accepting unlawful behavior, and irretrievable loss is somehow warranted, mm-hmm. and they establish a precedent for similar thefts of freedom mm-hmm. and personal loss in the future." Interesting. So the you know the question I have is, do Christians have a responsibility to respond when we see this happen? I think this is a worthy debate to have. Sure. There are many Bible-believing Christians who say these are things of the world; these are not my concerns. I'm of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, soul winning or other discipling, other kind of activities mm-hmm. are really the only duties I have. The world is corrupt anyway; it's just yeah. going to do it. Well, I'm not waste my time with th- it. I was going to make uh, before you said that. I was going to make the point that. The judge missed one one thing that when people lie like this over and over again, mm-hmm. what it, what it ends up doing is it inoculates you to the truth, because you build a, you build a worldview based on lies, and when somebody tells you something, you know, like, well, I mean, you know, are we supposed to support evil? And they go, well, what do you mean? And you say, well, you know, the Jews. Uh, in Israel have been convicted again and again and again of running these organ trafficking rings where they find poor people and <coughs> fly, them to, mm-hmm. fly them somewhere and then take their livers out or kidneys right. out. Right. Uh, are we supposed to support that? And they go, well, that really didn't happen. Yet there are you know, court cases pending. And in fact, the Israeli Supreme Court just ruled mm-hmm. that a, you know, one of their top generals was involved in mm-hmm. one of these rings. And you use that as one example of something mm-hmm. that we as evangelicals hold dear. Yeah. You know, a sacred mm-hmm. cow sure. that we hold. And that would be one of them, that that would be information that does not fit within our paradigm. Well, Therefore, we, we really don't want to hear the truth on that because it could shake up too much other stuff. Yeah, and, and, and the problem with that is that if you build a worldview based on lies, you become inoculated on the truth right. vis-a-vis, I don't want to hear about the or, human organ trafficking going on on the Jews because that may, may make me uh, make a decision based on the overarching mm-hmm. idea of love and justice and truth. Well, you know, that happens to individuals. We know who've had a life of deceiving people. They suddenly lose track of what is a lie and what is not. Mm-hmm. And that always seems like it happens in the last stages before somebody comes apart. Mm-hmm. But could it happen to a whole society? Could it happen to a whole culture? Absolutely. You know, is that possibly what happened to a large part of the German population Well, at uh, some stage? It's interesting because I've been thinking about that exact question a lot lately. Yeah. One of the things that I've mentioned to you in another context is the way that God's cursing and blessing seem to be symmetrical. And the idea that, you know, when Moses went up the mountain and came back down, uh, all the people were were worshiping Baal, you know, worshiping Mm -hmm. this big golden calf. Paul talks about that in the context of saying, so they started worshiping this, they worshiping the you know idols that weren't God, mm-hmm. and so God gave them over to sexual immorality, mm-hmm. and so you know as uh, like they did this, so God did this, mm-hmm. and I don't think our society is really used to thinking about those things. So perhaps, mm-hmm. 
perhaps maybe we ought to think along those lines just mm-hmm. as a just to see if it's true or not. Right. I'm not saying right. that it's right. it is true. But woe to us as a culture, particularly since there's so many mm-hmm. who say that they're Christians mm-hmm. in our society. If we would be so deceived that we would suddenly not be able to tell yeah. what lies and truth are. I played are. the flute for you, and you did not dance. And right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, let's switch topics here. I All want right. to talk about another one that we've, I don't think a topic we've ever talked about on Future Quake. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the lies he has a chapter devoted to is called Every Vote Counts. It's a huh. lie that huh. the government tells us. Yeah. <clears throat> Something a little different here. Just a few little tidbits for background here. He says the Constitution prevents the government from restricting the right to vote based on age, race, or gender. Surprisingly, however, neither the original U.S. Constitution nor the Bill of Rights explicitly grants or recognizes a federal right to vote. Hmm. Rather, the Constitution, as it stands today, protects the right to vote only when it is granted by the states. Yeah, but you can but you can backfill that through the 14th Amendment. Well, let's we'll, we'll continue on here. Okay. <clears throat> Voting privileges therefore extend only as far as our respective state legislatures permit, mm-hmm. which is which is a very interesting point. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> uh, just another point of sort of a history on on voting. He says even Alexander Hamilton, the father of big government, believed that election of senators by state legislatures which is what it was originally set up to be. Our senators were picked by our state legislatures so that the states and their leaders would have some influence mm-hmm. in a federalism case. Now it's elected directly by the people. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, as I'm to understand it, Hamilton believed in all sorts of things like eminent domain, like the government could take... Big government. He believed yeah. in a strong yeah, central government. Yeah, he was government. like the Jacobin slash neocon, mm-hmm. the idea that right. you know the government could, during a, in a case yeah. of eminent domain, the government could take the yeah. land for free. Because Aaron Burr took care of him. Yep. <laughs> okay, even Alexander Hamilton, the father of big government, believed that the election of senators by state legislatures would preserve the state's power by providing an absolute safeguard against federal government tyranny. George Mason, another founding father, opined that the election of senators by state legislatures would provide the people with some means of defending themselves against encroachments of the national government. I always thought that was a cool name, George Mason. His neighbor was like William Illuminati or something. Yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm surprised Judge Paul Tull didn't mention that yeah. aside in his book. Yeah, he lived down the street, <laughs> William Illuminati. Well, let me, you Johnny know, he, he talks a good bit in here about um, what has happened, where they've changed this, where now everything's popularly elected, and uh-huh. there are no safeguards for minorities and things like that, or even the states have influence. Well, uh, now, as you know, Judge Napolitano is is beloved in conservative circles generally. You know, he's on Fox News. Mm-hmm. He's loved in conservative circles, although you and I know he's a libertarian by mm-hmm. true nature, and he's very consistent in it. His mm-hmm. ideology stays consistent, mm-hmm. and if conservatives look very carefully, much of what he says is is condemning of them as much as liberalism mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of these uh, topics here. He's going to talk about the 2000 election. Okay. You can remember all the tension with that and mm-hmm. two sides, tooth and nail fighting over yep. it. Okay. Um he says uh, about the contested 2000 election, he says, for the purpose of discussion, we'll pick up the story in December 2000. At this point, Secretary of State of Florida, Catherine Harris, had certified the election for Governor Bush. On December 4, 2000, in the case of Gore versus Harris, a local judge in Tallahassee, Florida, upheld uh, Harris's certification and rejected any further recounts, including that a recount would make no difference. Mm-hmm. Gore appealed to the Florida Supreme Court. 
which on December 8th ordered a manual recount of all undervotes that had not yet been counted. An undervote in the context of this case was a ballot where the counting machine failed to register a preference in the race. Approximately 60,000 Florida undervotes were outstanding at this time. Bush then appealed to the United States Supreme Court, asking the court to stay the recount. The court, ruling by 5-4, to four, granted that stay and heard oral arguments on the merits of the case on December 11th. On December 12th, the Supreme Court decided, again 5-4, to four, to stop the recounts because the standards applied in the recounts were not uniform across the state, which would result in unequal treatment of votes and thus fundamental unfairness. Now, the court's decision to hear this case stemmed from the majority's political affiliation. Remember, this has come from Judge Napolitano. Hmm. Their self-interest in the election cannot be denied. Each of the five justices in the majority, to different extents, was affiliated or had been affiliated with the Republican Party. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, a native Arizonan, is a Republican who typically referred to Republicans as we and us. Now, remember, hmm. this is the, the disinterested court members, okay? Well, it's interesting of course, you know, they're nominated by different parties and, and supported, but this is just well, something yeah, but, we have to keep in mind. But if it was me and you and a you and I in a in a court case, we would have to recuse ourselves at some point if this if some of this information well, was brought to light. It gets it gets more interesting. All right. Okay. She served three terms in the Arizona State Senate and also served as co chairman of the Arizona State Committee to elect Richard Nixon president. Hmm. O'Connor was also an old friend of the Bush family. She played tennis with Barbara Bush and admitted or admired George W. Bush. In fact, she spent election night at the party hosted by Republicans and was heard saying, this is terrible, when the networks had called the election for Gore. Now, she's deciding the fundamentals of the case. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, obviously the other four had other issues like that for the Democratic side. Mm-hmm. Okay, according to her husband, Sandra was ready to retire to Arizona but did not want to give up her seat to a Democratic president. Chief Justice William Rehnquist campaigned for Barry Goldwater in 64 and in 1962 provided legal advice to Republicans uh, working to challenge Democratic voters' credentials in Phoenix, Arizona polling station. Hmm. Judge Anthony Kennedy was considered a Sacramento lawyer lobbyist who voluntarily traveled to the state of California campaigning for then-Governor Ronald Reagan's anti-tax initiative. Voluntarily. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Justice Clarice Thomas' wife worked for the Heritage Foundation, a conservative organization to manage the Bush's transition to the White House. Two of Justice Antonin Scalia's sons worked for law firms representing George W. Bush. Hmm. Uh, I mean this per- thumbnail personal political history not as an assault on the Republican members of the court, some of whom at this writing I'm privileged to call personal friends. And I cannot overlook the prejudicial democratic political activities of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Stephen Breyer. And I am mindful of the incendiary mission of Justice William O. Douglas that, quote, up there at the Supreme Court, no one is neutral. Nevertheless, whether the justice intentions were good or bad, pure or impure, constitutional or political, Bush versus Gore was an assault on federalism and freedom. The justice's political motivation was also evident from the decision itself. Conservative judges typically claim to have a strong belief in the concept of federalism and want us to believe that they will exercise deference to state governments when applicable. Hmm. They also tend to assail liberal activist judges for not practicing judicial restraint and essentially legislating from the bench. Here, however, the conservatives acted out of character. Until Bush versus Gore, neither the Supreme Court nor any other federal court had ever enforced a uniformity rule in the counting of ballots. Okay? Mm-hmm. So basically what he's saying is this was really a state issue. 
whether yeah. you liked what the results were or not. This was sure. a st- and this impacted obviously uh, our our future. He says every state has varying methods of ca- casting and counting votes, and the issue was not unique to Florida. So um, I'll sort of s- skip forward this. Uh, it talks about the hanging Chad and the, the, this and that. Uh, the most Who is this dis- Chad guy? And why do we want to hang? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> the, m- the more disturbing part is that the Supreme Court did not seek to remedy the equal protection violation. According to the court, uniform standards cannot be set before a federal deadline for Florida to certify the results. The deadline happened to be December 12th, the date on which the decision was rendered. Therefore, the Supreme Court deemed the recounts unconstitutional, yet in the end proceeded to ignore the 60,000 undervotes rather than allow the Florida Supreme Court to attempt to resolve the situation. As icing on the cake, the Supreme Court further stated, in its opinion, our consideration is limited to the present circumstances, for the problem of equal protection and election processes generally presents many complexities. The court, however, is not supposed to decide complex issues that involve politics, especially when the state involved in the suit has already made a decision. So this, uh, and, uh, Furthermore, no Supreme Court decision is limited to the present circumstances. It is true the Supreme Court decides cases and does not actively make law, but its decisions establish precedent applicable to future cases. Moreover, even if the court's decision did not extend to future circumstances, it did damage to its own legitimacy and the legitimacy of the 2000 presidential election and the disenfranchised 60,000 American votes. Hmm. And the winner of that election did not confine his exercise of power Limited to the present circumstances. Bush versus Gore literally had limitless effect on the lives of six billion human beings, and the court ought to have known that. So, you know, that's a tough message for yeah, people boy. in the conservative community, because obviously it's like, you know, I liked how that turned out. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, he would be definitely probably one more leaning in the conservative direction, but he's mm-hmm. a straight shooter, and he says, look, this was not a, this was not a federal, this was a state issue. Mm-hmm. And precedent was that this was a state issue, mm-hmm. even if it didn't come out the way you want. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's uh, Christians should be able to understand those kind of things. Sure. So, um, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Right. Right. I, I, I understand. Um, he provides a little remedy here. If you, do you, do you mind if I just share a little bit more about some sure. of his Lay thoughts? On and, and I want you to interject in the middle of this, okay. this diatribe, okay? <clears throat> that I'm reading. Uh, it says the Supreme Court decision of Bush versus Gore was a travesty. But even if we had discovered the true winner, the two-party system would still dominate American politics, uh, limiting voter choice and the development of third parties. No matter what they say, Democrats and Republicans in the United States do not control the government because they are best able to serve us and meet our needs. Mm -hmm. In fact, both parties couldn't care less about us. The United States government, as stated earlier, is not a democracy. In fact, some would argue that it's not even a republic since our leaders do not actually work for us. Some believe the U.S. government is actually an oligarchy in which just a few thousand people, mostly in government, finance, and the military-industrial complex, run this country for their own purposes. These powerful people seek to preserve their power by manipulating the mainstream media, controlling campaign finance money, and thus nominating candidates who will work for them regardless of their party affiliation. It's pretty strong words. Yeah, not holding back. Democrats and Republicans, controlled by powerful interests, work to preserve their power. Both parties promote, quote, changing Washington, but in reality, they like Washington just the way it is. Little gets done that they don't like, and none of our officials are truly held accountable. If we don't seek to change the system, the Republican Party will always be the party that claims it does not want to govern, and the Democratic Party will always pretend to govern. 
Isn't that an interesting quote? That's the 2008 great. political, yeah, the 2008 presidential election is a great example of the two-party monopoly putting forth two candidates who were substantially the same. Senator John S. McCain, a, quote, Republican from Arizona, and Senator Barack Obama, a, quote, Democrat from Illinois, spoke ad nauseum about the federal dis- fundamental disagreements between them. After the campaign, uh, after following the campaign closely, listening to the speeches and watching the debates, it was still difficult for me, talking about the judge, mm-hmm. to come up with issues on which the two candidates truly disagreed. Both candidates opposed gay marriage, at least so long as they were politicians. Uh, Obama hoped that the Iraq War would end during his presidency, while McCain ran on the idea that the, quote, surge was working. President Obama currently has plans to shift American involvement in Iraq to Afghanistan. Both candidates supported bigger, more powerful government, not just Obama. McCain stated that he supported smaller government, but chose to, quote, suspend his campaign in September 2008. He did no such thing. It was a PR stunt. After the fall of Lehman Brothers, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac, to go to Washington and vote for the first of many massive bailout packages. And I'll tell you what's interesting. And he's quoting that again. Yeah. McCain did that. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you what's interesting. Uh, as an aside, uh, I, you know, it's funny. We just had a conversation last night where I said I didn't want to get on any rabbit trails. Yeah. And here I am doing one. But the information is fascinating. Goldman Sachs uh, is insured by AIG. Mm-hmm. So when they get sued, their insurance kicks in and somebody pays for their prosecution, you know, pays yeah. for their defense. So... We are stuck in a situation where AIG was bailed out with American taxpayer yeah, money. which goes to bail out these guys that were crooks. Yeah, yeah, so we've got American taxpayer money paying for the pro- for the defense of Goldman Sachs, while we still have American money paying for the prosecution of Goldman Sachs. Isn't that awesome? So we're paying for a high-priced public defender for them, in mm-hmm. other words. We're paying for a limited hangout, a very large limited hangout. Well, I didn't mean to go on so long with this. No, uh, it's okay. He... This the is, judge talks strongly. This package authorized the borrowing or printing or spending of over $1 trillion on the same government-motivated get-rich-quick schemes that produced the crisis. Both Obama and McCain thought it would be nice to decrease the national debt, and both viewed lower taxes as better for Americans and higher ones. Moreover, I do not think the Federal Reserve Bank was discussed publicly even once by either candidate during the campaign, let alone plans to audit, reform, or abolish it. They both approved TARP funds for struggling companies, and supported the federal takeover of education, Medicare prescription drug benefits, and the burdensome Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Moreover, Obama and McCain still endorsed the unconstitutional liberty-restricting Patriot Act, which, while not making us safer, invades our natural rights. Both candidates opposed the legalization of marijuana, although Obama stated he would be open to the use of marijuana for medical purposes. Hmm. On abortion, Obama and McCain seemingly disagreed. Obama's pro-choice and believes having an abortion is, quote, one of the most fundamental rights we possess. McCain claims to oppose abortion. Throughout the campaign, he denounced the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade and vowed to nominate Supreme Court justices who would overturn it. Yet in August 99, McCain stated, certainly in the short term or even in the long term, I would not support repeal of Roe v. Wade, at which would then force X number of women in America to undergo illegal and dangerous abortions. Hmm. Totally counter. Yeah. And he supported pro-abortion judges. Yeah. And we've got to go. We'll pick it up tomorrow. Um, Murr, would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us here at FutureQuake? FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E 
at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Sorry if this is a little disjointed. It's okay. But you know. I'm like a Picasso. His words are, you know. You do look a little disjointed like a Picasso. got two eyes on one side. On one side of your face, that's right, (laughs) like a... Well, ball eye, I guess. Ladies and gentlemen, come back tomorrow. We're going to pick up where we left off. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Ciao. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, uh, going through the book. Bionic. Way to stop there on the middle name. I could have went longer, but it would have been weird. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it's the middle of the week, and uh, what we're doing uh, in these uh, shows in the middle of the week is discussing some content from uh, our guest on Monday, Judge Andrew DiPolitano, talking about his new book out, Lies the Government Told You, Myth, Power, and Deception in American History. And as we said yesterday, (coughs) man, it got this still bad bad call. He said that... uh, he couldn't stay, but only for about a half hour. So mm-hmm. we couldn't ask him about a lot of the great content in the book. Mm-hmm. So you had a great idea about you and I talking mm-hmm. about some of the other material in there. We're still only covering a tiny bit that's in it. You need to get the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what you need to do is uh, uh, get it and pour over it yourself, share it with some people. Well, maybe but we we're, we're going to talk some more about it. Maybe we could. Uh, well, I won't give up. I won't give up. We'll, one we'll, of our top we'll have some ideas. Yeah. Have some ideas. We'll give up any top secret Let's talk plans. about another controversial topic. Um, for the judge, for us, and for evangelical Christians in general, okay? One of the lies that he devotes a chapter to, that the government tells us, is we are winning the war on drugs. <coughs> mm, interesting. Me. He says, Me in Arkansas? I'm going to proceed with his discussions. Mm-hmm. The war on drugs is a deceptive name for what has really become a war on the American people through the government's assault on human freedom, the prison system, and all taxpayers. Hmm. Despite nearly four decades of battling against the use and selling of drugs, the government's so-called war on drugs, both at home and abroad, has largely been a failure. The tide of drugs imported into this country is not slowed, despite astronomical spending by the government and the imprisonment of record numbers of Americans, often for the possession of insignificant amounts of recreational drugs. Legislators, police, and prosecutors have encouraged judges to lock up more and more Americans, causing prisons to be bursting at the seams and ruining countless lives, a great many of them among racial minorities. This government lie is hardly new. In fact, the war on drugs is in effect a reincarnation of prohibition. The sale of all alcoholic beverages was outlawed in 1920 with the passage of the 18th Amendment. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Closing the legal market on something that consumers desire simply open a black market. In the 1920s, there was a great deal of corruption and violence mm-hmm. caused by the government ban. It actually created the lawlessness that characterized the era. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Consequently, gangs and organized crime flourished. By 1921, the murder rate in America jumped. After seemingly recognizing the harm that prohibition had caused, the United States enacted the 21st Amendment in 1933 to allow people to drink as they pleased. After prohibition was repealed, the homicide rate began to fall. This is not a coincidence. Hmm. 
After the alcohol ban was repealed, much of the organized crime that was facilitated by prohibition simply switched to businesses uh, and entered into the illegal drug market. Okay. Today, after several decades of the war on drugs uh, having commenced, the black market for drugs is thriving. Ironically, in this metaphoric war on the use of drugs, the government has facilitated actual wars, actual violence, and actual death. It is about time the government put its weapons and our cash down and began to use some common sense. What do you think about his assertions in that well, entry? Well, there's, there's a couple of things that I would add to that or uh, comment on. One, two words, well, several words. I'll, I'll give you some catchphrases. Mena, Arkansas. Uh, well, explain that. People have no idea what DC you're talking DC-9, Yucatan, crash. Does this involve... 337th Air Base. Okay. This Army is, Air Base. Does this involve uh, drugs that were being transported by officials of the government? Yes, it does. Presumably to sell, to finance things? No, I'm sure that they were, I'm sure that they were there just to pave the driveway with. Okay. All right. <laughs> so maybe it's even worse than what he's alluding to here. Well, yeah. Uh, germane to this discussion, of course, is the point that I've made here several times that I really believe that when you when you prohibit somebody from doing something, uh, especially somebody who's uh, intelligent enough to make yeah. decisions by themselves, it always tends to breed rebellion. Well, particularly when <clears throat> the government is trying to st- take someone from making their free choices, personal choices, mm-hmm. and trying to evoke a morality. Mm-hmm. When the government is anything but moral, <clears throat> yeah, it's it would be different if they always told the truth. But as yeah. you know, even yet, everybody sort of jokes about the government lying. Mm-hmm. So it's right. It's hard to take. <clears throat> it's hard for them to use as an arbitrator yeah. of, of what's moral. You know, but I want to make clear to our listeners too that we we're not trying to encourage everybody to take drugs by any stretch. I and sure hope not. In fact, in fact, I would I well, would say that you would no under no circumstances right. should. Amen. And and you know I just gave a talk this weekend at a conference about the dangers mm-hmm. of drugs and the fact that it could even open up demonic portals mm-hmm. and things out of your control. So I would hardly recommend against it. <coughs> the thing is I'm recommending it. I'm not going and putting a gun at the end. So anyway, sorry about my cough there. No, it's okay. Uh, I but, can read if you want to have a drink. But you know what? <clears throat> It's sort of funny asking me for a drink when we're talking about drugs here. Yeah. Um, well, you know, a drink of water. Once you resume here on page 193 where it says All American right. taxpayers on to the end of it's that my segment. Big, it's my big break here. Yeah, just don't mess it up. Dun, dun, dun. American taxpayers are once again forced to foot the bill. And a mammoth bill it is, as the United States spends at least $40 billion a year on costs directly related to the drug war, and then several billion more indirect costs. I would actually think it's probably even higher than that. Uh, because uh, Northrop Grumman, some people were actually just recently caught, just recently released. They were doing uh, uh, surveillance flights over Colombia, and it was being mm-hmm. financed by the federal government. Mm-hmm. And we know that because these people got captured and then were released several years later by FARC. Yeah. Uh, the <clears> costs <throat> of uh, the costs of spraying Colombian crops, of hiring numerous DA and other government employees. Or locking up more people on drug charges than all of the West, all of Western Europe locks up on all charges combined. Wow, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Are astronomical, and these these are only the direct costs. What about the welfare dependence that comes from creating a class of people who have drug-related crimes on their record and often cannot obtain employment? The drug war is indeed perpetuating a harrowing cycle for people with drug <coughs> use or drug sales in their past. For example, let's say you were charged with sales and then were forced to spend some time in jail. Once you served your time and were released from prison, you decided to apply for some jobs. When you fill out employment applications, you 
you are asked whether you had a criminal record. Uh, if you check the box yes, chances are that you won't be the employer's first choice. If you check the box no, you are lying and could get into further trouble if the employer does a background check or finds out that you lied. There are no great options here. Then, because you cannot find a legitimate job, it is difficult to make a living. This makes turning to the sale of drugs an easy and almost sensible option, even if that is not the choice you wanted to make. The point is that when the government locks ordinary people away for committing nonviolent, non-victim, harmless drug crimes, it sets people up for repeat offenses. It also makes welfare a very plausible option. Either way, taxpayer money goes to the huge cost of filling prisons or the huge cost of supporting people and their families when the breadwinner is imprisoned or unemployable. And the cycle generally does not end with one person. Children who grow up in houses where their parents are drug dealers, in housing projects, and on welfare generally are not primed to have the brightest futures. They grow up around these things, and this lifestyle becomes normalized and passed on. Whole generations of families grow up around this, and it is not it is unhealthy, dangerous, and expensive. This cycle is detrimental, and the government's holier-than-thou values have been unable to stop it. Mm-hmm. One of the things I would comment on that, well, what do you think? I've been doing well, all the commenting. I think, uh, I wonder, does, do American Christians ever stop and think all those things through like you just read? Hmm. What, are the, what are the ramifications when you create a cycle where someone goes in a nonviolent a possession thing, they go to jail. They're around hardened criminals. All they do is learn about crime, maybe get involved in a gang. Mm-hmm. They come out. They can't get a job because of this on their record, mm-hmm. even though, again, they were caught, you know, with, with some dope or something. Mm-hmm. So they can't get a job. So either they're going to go back selling drugs, which you don't have to sign an application to sell drugs, mm-hmm. or they're going to go on welfare or do something that further accentuates a negative aspect to society mm-hmm. and so what, I, what, what I'm saying the obvious question should be is is throwing them in jail really something in the best interest of society hmm. and that is a reasonable question to ask uh, particularly sure. when we have one drug of choice an alcohol that is socially acceptable and people can do you know use in certain quantities of it without any issue in fact it's celebrated mm-hmm. but we take another drug and again, I don't recommend people take any drugs whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But we do that, and we create this cycle that has overcrowded prisons, that teach them more crime, mm-hmm. and that basically stops any ability they would have to do anything in the future for society. Well, and it's interesting <clears throat> too to see the to see the way that the whole thing gets put together. You see, police uh, agencies really—they wouldn't say this in public, but really they sort of support the war on drugs right. because they a lot of times these police officers are allowed to keep what they confiscate. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's one one thing that I saw where this gentleman who owned a car detailing business was mm-hmm. doing very well for himself, was driving to see his to see his mother, ailing mother, to give her, you know, like two thousand dollars for her rent and medical bills. Right. He has his cash in his back <clears throat> pocket, uh, and because he's an African American guy, the cops pull him over, get him out of the car, and they say, "What's in your pocket?" He says, "My wallet," and they said, "Well, get it out here." And he said, yeah. I don't, you know, I've showed you my driver's license. I don't have to show you yeah. my wallet. They said, get it out or we're going to send you to jail. And so they take the, they take the, um, they, he takes the wallet out and they rifle through it mm-hmm. there on camera. Yeah. And, uh, he says, they said, take the money out. He said, uh, that's my money. Mm-hmm. And the police officer says, take it out or you're going to jail. Mm-hmm. So they take it out and he counts it 
right there in right. front of me. He says, I am keeping this and confiscating it on a drug-related charge. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then took off. Now, fortunately, the gentleman had a camera right. and caught the whole ridiculous Good. scene on. It was actually, Good. I think it was even on NPR for a while. Okay. Um, but that is a typical... It that's happens, a typical, all, happens all the time. Sure, sure. That's all a typical time. thing that happens with uh, some police officers. Do you hear a lot of Christians talking about how that bothers them? No, you do not. Not that I'm aware of, but I don't own a TV. But so. it's injustice. I mean, did, sure. are we to think that God is pleased by that? You know, that's an interesting that's an interesting conundrum, and one that I've talked to several different people at length about. What is the line of truth, justice, and loving your neighbor? Uh, and what is this thing of you know obeying the government uh, because they are a because they're mm-hmm. supposed to be not a hindrance to good works. Well, what injustice do you think God would want you to tolerate? I don't know. I, I don't think He would want you to to- tolerate any injustice. I'm talking but, against against your neighbor. Sure. I don't think you would want to tolerate any injustice. And that's not to say we take up arms and actively try and mm-hmm. you know foment a revolt. But you know, God told the prophets over and over and over again mm-hmm. to tell the people. I have this against you because of this injustice you let happen. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, the obvious presumption is if the, if God is holding them guilty of letting it happen, that means they had the wherewithal and means by mm-hmm. which to stop it. And and his his prophecies to his prophets were not just to the kings. They mm-hmm. were to the common people. The common people were doing it in their local community, injustice, just like the kings were doing it on a national level. Mm-hmm. So God was holding all these people accountable for injustices they tolerated within their own spheres, sure. as I understand it. Uh, and I would and I would agree with that. Uh, and I think really may, perhaps the linchpin, and I I mean to study Romans 13 more in depth, but I just haven't had mm-hmm. a chance to do it, is the whole idea that uh, you know they are not a rulers are not a, a hindrance to good works. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens if they are? Right. right. Are we still under that? Are we still under that? compunction to obey everything they say what if rulers are lawless it says the purpose of the rulers is to maintain order in the mm-hmm. laws uh you know we've talked about this before about the authorities and my personal conviction is the authority that's relevant where we live that the bible says to be subject to authorities is the constitution mm-hmm. that's the only thing that's permanent uh the the administrators we have that we let come and go they're supposed mm-hmm. to administer the constitution mm-hmm. okay so when they don't do that they're lawbreakers so they may still have the title of, of administrator or president or whatever, but what they really are are lawbreakers, just like a criminal. Mm. And do we tolerate criminals? I don't think that's what God has ever said, No, that criminals should be tolerated. Interesting points. Yeah. Interesting well, let's points. proceed with some more discussion okay. here. You want me to read some more? Or? Yeah, let's see. Okay. Let's see um, another, we're gonna, another passage. We're going right to talk, right talk about it right there. Down there. Um, Politicians, this is page 194 in case you're reading along. Coming along, okay. Uh, Politicians like to speak about the war on drugs because combating drugs sounds moral. The people from good families with good morals and good character that we want to represent us in the government feel the need to propagate this squeaky clean image. Advocating for a a drug-free society generally helps this image and is something that the public wants to hear. Politicians are afraid to veer away from it. The mainstream public is afraid to disagree. Basically, we all waste $40 billion a year to keep up a useless, ineffective appearance. And that's really an interesting point. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's fooled by this charade? Question mark. Uh, Tom Bionic interjects and says a lot of people. Including the Christian community, which is supposed to be 
filled with God's spirit of wisdom and discernment. Mm -hmm. Anyone who picks up a newspaper, tabloid, watches TV, or goes on the Internet could tell you that politicians are far from angels. Um, No comment. (laughs) (laughs) They have affairs, they steal money, they gamble, they drink to excess. Many have even used drugs that they themselves have voted to make illegal. And the truth is, many ordinary American people have used drugs as well. For this is the reason that the drug war is such a large enterprise. That's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't be fighting so much if there wasn't the market. Right. Right. At its heart, the war on drugs is about false morality and personal freedom. People do risky things every day. Sure, some people are more averse to risk than others and would never climb a mountain or go bungee jumping or even listen to Future Quake. Yet, some yeah. people love doing these death-defying stunts and their quality of life would be damaged without doing them. Drugs are not much different. Once you take the government's sense of morality out of the equation and simply look at drugs as dangerous and addictive substances, excuse me, drugs are really not much different than other risks. So instead of spouting on and on about, about the morality of this issue, couldn't politicians take on the cause of freedom? Question mark. This gets back to the heart of what this book argues. The government lies to us when it tells us the drug war is for our own good or when it tells us that the war on drugs is worth drugs is working. The government lies to us by covering up what the drug war is actually about, image, power, and usurping the rights of Americans. Hmm. There you go. Wish he could be more more, yeah, more direct. I, I wish he, I'm and having you know, trouble <clears throat> kind of figuring out where he's coming from. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it, Christians, you know, it's gonna, they're going to pop a cork a lot when they hear this. Mm-hmm. But the the honest truth is... Of like champagne or what? This This is an issue... That God and God alone can convict a person or heal them from as far as the use of drugs in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's like the government's saying they're going to go on a war against adultery. Okay, well, let's say they went on a war against adultery because that's would not be good. Empty if you got everybody yeah. was perpetrating. Well, same thing with drugs. Yeah. Okay, war on adultery. Well, everybody knows adultery is bad. Mm-hmm. Do you think the government has the moral authority or the capability? To put a stop to adultery? Absolutely not. Of course not. Do you think there might be some hidden adultery that goes on behind closed doors somewhere? No. Like it already does today? No, of course not. So, however, the power of Jesus Christ, preached from pulpits of America or shared from one friend to another, has the power mm-hmm. to deliver people from that. Mm-hmm. So, haven't we sort of substituted government? as an idol over God himself to help people with issues that have moral consequence? Gosh, I have so much to say about that without giving away, but I don't want to give away all the stuff I'm researching here currently for possibly a book. So Okay, all uh, right. But I would say, I would say, well, I will add this. I will say yes. Uh, it, it's always appalled me uh, after doing some research. We did that show where we talked about people saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag in their churches. They would say, and Lord, we don't want any. We want to put you first. We want to put you first and nothing else second. And mm-hmm. then say the pledge of allegiance to the flag. Right. That's always like that. When we, when when you told me that a lot of churches did that, I just couldn't sure. believe it. Sure. And, and I think other people have told you yeah. they've been in the same circumstance too. I know. And the churches that they were at. It rigged <clears throat> me out. Now you know, think about Ron Paul's uh, campaign. Mm-hmm. He was a uh, active, I think, Baptist. Uh, Actually married to the same wife for 40-something years, mm-hmm. you know, active in his you know, beliefs practice. But he ran into two 
loggerheads with the Christian community. Mm-hmm. One was he didn't like killing people, which they'd already committed to the killing people part in war. Mm-hmm. And he also didn't like um, uh, telling people that they couldn't do immoral things with the government like drugs. Mm-hmm. And for those things... He was not even really graded or even invited by the value voters coalition hmm. because he didn't take those positions because his thinking, I can guarantee you, would have been in line with what Judge Napolitano just shared. That's very interesting. I've always been a little bit perplexed by the idea of uh, Christian a Christian theocracy, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, um, certainly in, in my own life, I've seen, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, used, I used to think that I just had a rebellious streak, and maybe that's true, but... I see it in other people as well, a lot of other people, that mm-hmm. when you tell them don't do something and you lack either the moral authority or a good reason not to, mm-hmm. uh, all people, and myself especially, are highly inclined to do it. Mm-hmm. But you know what these people were saying, these value voters, Christian leaders? They mm-hmm. were actually wanting more oppressive totalitarian government than Ron Paul wanted. Hmm. They, just like wanted to, they just wanted it to do their thing. Sounds like the Jews in front of Samuel saying, <clears throat> give us a king. Mm-hmm. Give us a king. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the only person who didn't think it was a good idea was God. Yeah. Can Can I share with you a few things? Uh, mm-hmm. There's a There's a professor here that just elaborates a little further here in the time. Anthony Gregory, senior researcher at the Independent Institute, mm-hmm. a think tank in Oakland, eloquently wrote: "The ideology of the war on drugs is the ideology of totalitarianism, of communism, of fascism, of slavery. In practice, it is made an utter mockery of the rule of law." and the often-spouted idea that America is the freest country on earth. The United States has one of the highest per capita prison populations in the world, second only to Rwanda. Thanks, you know, more than Russia, more than China is the United States. Imprisoned wow. people per capita. I didn't, I didn't think about that. Thanks largely to, yeah, yeah, and they're the ones that are the real, you know, mm-hmm. oppressive people. Mm-hmm. Thanks largely to Although the Although, as far as we know, nobody's, like, taking body organs in American prison, so I will give, I will go with yeah. that. I mean, We'll probably have a show later on that. <laughs> Thanks largely to the drug war, drug war, all while its federal government imposes its drug policies on other countries by methods ranging from mere diplomatic bullying to spraying foreign crops with lethal poison, from bribing foreign heads of state to bankrolling and whitewashing acts of mass murder conducted by despots in the name of fighting drugs. Mm-hmm. Now, here's some examples of typical things that go on in the war on drugs uh, in law enforcement. This is from the judge. Reported incidents reveal a gross abuse of police power during a drug raid. In Philadelphia, a group of narcotics squad members entered Jose Duran's tobacco shop with guns drawn and then smashed some of the store's surveillance cameras with a metal rod. So I can't see what's going on. Wait a minute. The, the drug people, the drug... The government people government are breaking drug. the camera so they don't see what comes next. Huh. Before arresting the owners for selling tiny, empty Ziploc bags which the officers claimed were drug paraphernalia, the the empty bags. After breaking the remaining surveillance cameras, the police stole money from the cash register and handfuls of Zippo lighters. Similar stories about abuse of police power were reported by seven other shops in the Philadelphia area. All of these jackbooted raids were apparently led by narcotics officer Jeffrey Kudzik. At least three people who formerly acted as informants for him claimed that the officer would give them cartons of cigarettes that he stole from the stores he raided. In one raided store, officers opened up the refrigerators to drink and take the juice and energy drinks kept inside. Huh. That's no. very that's that's very interesting and typical of of a lot of the stuff. You know, we we reviewed a show here, or we were, mm-hmm. we reviewed a news story recently 
uh, well, I, actually about a year ago, about Camp Greyhound there in Katrina. And it's right. come out recently that one of the people involved in uh, arresting the, the, the main character on that was uh, a group of, well, it was a group of police officers that were going door-to-door looting uh, to trade to trade whatever they had mm-hmm. for gasoline from the National Guard to keep their generators running at night mm-hmm. while they stayed in this secure location. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, let me share some more here. Uh, no matter who performs actions like this, they're against the law. But people's rights are often trampled with the war on drugs used as a justification. These Philadelphia raids are a few examples of the government-engineered assaults on our rights through the war on drugs. Several federal civil rights lawsuits were filed against uh, Kudzik and his brother, who is also an officer, other drug members in the city of Philadelphia. Hmm. Uh, the government uses the drug war to justify taking away our rights guaranteed by the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution, which prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures and bars search warrants on anything but those based upon probable cause of criminal activity and issued by judges. Since the war on drugs began almost four decades ago, most searches and seizures reaching the Supreme Court have been approved. According to Yale Law School professor Stephen Duke, the court has held that a search based on an invalid warrant does not require any remedy so long as the police acted in good faith. Yeah. Um... It says uh, people can be stopped in their cars or airports, trains, and buses and submitted to questioning or held to be sniffed by dogs. Uh, they can sniff an open fi- search an open field without warrant or cause. Or now even they can get body scanned at the airport. That's right. It's an extension of the same thing. It's yeah. the same same mindset. Um, let me uh, let me just share further. Uh, there are many examples of wrong door raids where the police bust in the homes of individuals only to find that they entered the wrong house and found no drugs. In fact, there's a there's a, a, a story I reviewed recently on FutureQuake where a lady in Missouri uh, had her, her son was attacked by, and I do mean attacked, uh, by police officers. And they claimed that he was drunk and they let the dog run free around their yard. And then she questioned them. And yeah. then the dog bit her, and then to cover up, they arrested her. And then it was ten years before she finally got reparations mm-hmm. because yeah. the the uh, everything in the book they lied, everybody they colluded, they lost the videos. Right. Uh, they, right. Yeah, on and on and on and on. Yeah. yeah thin blue line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. November two thousand six. He he has a whole long list of these kind of events. A ninety two year old woman was shot and killed in her Atlanta home when three officers raided on drug bust. Mm-hmm. Uh, the elderly woman who was killed did not have any drugs. Police had the wrong house. Mm-hmm. But officers had obtained a search warrant after an overcutter officer had allegedly purchased drugs at her home. It happened earlier in the day. Pam, Pamela one time up in Canada. The cops kicked in her door at four in the morning, dragged her husband, her then husband, out in his underoos, handcuffed, threw him on the lawn, disassembled their house, and then after about 30 minutes said, Oops. Yeah. We got. We wanted the house next street over. Right. Yeah. Right. Sorry. Go ahead. You know, there's more and more. Let me just summarize this. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it says America's children have fallen victim to the drug war. Getting in trouble with the law at a young age follows many youngsters in adulthood. These children are plagued with emotional baggage and possibly a criminal record for trying to satisfy their curiosities. He says if we want to raise the happy, healthy children, it's up to families, peer groups, and communities to restrict harmful behavior, not the government. Close-knit relationships and good examples reach much, much further than the government ever could, and they do not cost taxpayers a dime. It says the uh, government does two things very well. It scares us to death, and it spends our money. 
The war on drugs is no different than any other government scam employed to steal our money. Just like Operation Gladio. <laughs> we got to go. Right. Merv, would you come tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. Okay, let's We're, go. We'll have one more session with mm-hmm. this book. Ladies and gentlemen, come back tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Crackshot Bionic. Crackshot, does anyone know what you're referring to with it? Maybe. Okay, there's some mystery for you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back again to the Future Quake Show. We are doing something a little different this week. Uh, Monday, we had Judge Andrew DiPolitano on, talking about his new book out, Lies the Government Told You, mm-hmm. Myth, Power, and Deception in American History. Uh, he is a, a man of great demand. People are lucky to get two minutes of his time. If that, he is gracious enough to give us almost a half hour of his time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not enough for a full week of Future Quake. Yeah. So you had the great idea that this incredible book that he wrote, very I'm powerful book. Man. That's right. That maybe you and I could uh, explore some of the additional material we couldn't cover with him mm-hmm. and have a little discussion together, introduce it to our listeners, and we're picking some of the more provocative things that are going to cause them to mm-hmm. challenge them and pick their brain and stuff. Picking the brain. I think we've probably accomplished that so far this week, even before this show. Yeah, we may we may need to uh, <coughs> they may be to the hardened bunker after some of the burning effigies of us after yesterday, yeah. but um, let, let's pick up, if you don't mind. Uh, with some sessions that we're going to read and then discuss here. Sure. Uh, one of his other lies in his book, he's got many of them in there, uh, is the lie our government tells us that everyone is innocent until proven guilty. Mm. Okay. Probably the least questioned and most believed government lie is also the most famous maxim of the American judicial system, that all persons are presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. This presumption of innocence is a standard taught to the youngest of school children and which the government hails as a founding principle of justice because it presumes that, like the oft-repeated Lord Justice William Blackstone uh, uh, statement, better that ten guilty persons escape than that one innocent suffer. Hmm. Of course, quote, innocent until proven guilty, unquote, has been at the core of Western judicial system since biblical times. We are indoctrinated so thoroughly that the average person rarely considers whether the phrase is true or not. Yet when we carefully examine the system, we find that it does not function as the government would like us to believe. Beneath the surface of various platitudes, the falsity of the presumption of innocence becomes readily apparent. Hmm. So let me give you some examples he shares here. Okay? Mm -hmm. He says, um, and and he has a a long thing. I'm not going to go here through how the Supreme Court and others have have found areas where... um, 
people are really sort of presumed guilty and so innocent. Like, for example, if if you truly are have a mental problem, you know, and you, and you mm-hmm. would be insane, it becomes behooving upon you to prove that uh, rather than the than the plaintiffs to prove that you were really guilty. It's interesting did something. because this is one example. A, there was recently a case where uh, in Massachusetts where a guy uh, a guy and his wife got mad at each other. She left, called the cops, said, "Well, he's got a bunch of guns." You need to go get him. So they showed up at his condo and said, you know, he woke up at 5.20 a.m. to a phone call. And they said, come out, you're surrounded. And he said, I will come out on three conditions, that you won't arrest me, I won't be taken off my property, and you won't submit mm-hmm. me to a psychiatric evaluation. And I didn't understand the psychiatric evaluation right. thing until until just recently. And, you know, he mm. made that clear. Mm. Yeah, in fact, in some of these cases, you hear people like Judge... Justice Rehnquist, he says, uh, he quotes that the presumption of innocence did not have any application before trial. What? In other words, he's saying, well, before trial, and he's, he's talking about specific cases here, uh, presuming you're innocent beforehand does not have applicability. That's when you need it. Mm-hmm. That's when you need it is before and during the trial itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, as a result of this, Justice Thurgood Marshall uh, said that the result was affected the same as if the court had chosen a decree that the presumption did not exist at all, which is the point I was making. He says, if our hmm. courts can lose sight of such a presumption of innocence and continue to authorize the police to arrest you at any time for even the most minute crimes, like not wearing a seatbelt while parked or juggling cigar boxes on a sidewalk in Times Square in New York City without a license. Juggling cigar boxes? There was was a case, I don't know. Or being quietly drunk in a bar in the state of Texas recently. He's all quoting actual cases. Okay. Then our rights extend only as far as the police subjectivity allow. Mm -hmm. Okay? Uh, And and commenting on this thing about having to prove that that you are innocent via insanity, Mm -hmm. which falls on you, which is counter to this central tenet, Mm -hmm. he says, what's most shocking about such a requirement is that it shifts the burden of proof from the prosecution to the defense. In every criminal trial, the prosecution has the burden of proving every element of the charged crime, every component of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The defendant does not have to examine any witnesses or present any evidence. The defendant does not have any burden. He is not required to prove anything at all. This is the meaning of innocent until proven guilty. That the defendant is presumed innocent and that the prosecution must prove to the jury that he is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, sadly, I'm skipping forward here, the Supreme Court has also held that once an innocent man is found guilty by a jury, this is very important here, he cannot appeal on the basis that he has proof of his actual innocence. In other words, so, so if a court finds you guilty of something and later you find absolute concrete evidence that you're innocent, mm-hmm. you do not have a right to have it reevaluated. I did not know that. The court held that the due process clause, which means you get a right to trial and so on, mm-hmm. did not require that every conceivable step is taken at whatever cost to eliminate the possibility of convicting an innocent person. Hmm. In other words, if it's too costly and they know that person's innocent, but it would be costly to fix it. They're not allowed it. Well, there was that movie, The Thin Blue Line, where they had it was a series yeah. of interviews with all the people, mm-hmm. you know, and, and nobody wanted to do anything about it, even right. though they had the perpetrator in custody. It seemed right. Yeah. Well, listen to this. This, this mm-hmm. is this is real. Mm-hmm. So while the basic premise of our system is preached to be that no innocent can be jailed, no matter how guilty, how many guilty go free, this does not apply when the cost of insuring his uh, this gets too high. 
The idea of a cost-benefit analysis applied to innocence in the justice system is not the most heartwarming of thoughts. Uh, Leonel Texas Herrera, who was convicted of killing a police officer and once convicted of that death, pled guilty to the death of another, is the example of where such a path will lead. After being sentenced to death, Herrera appealed based on, quote, actual innocence. In effect, he provided proof that he had not committed the crime, including the affidavits of a lawyer, a former classmate, and a former cellmate of his brothers, all three of whom swore that Herrera's brother had confessed to them of committing the crime. He also had a statement from his nephew attesting that he had witnessed his own father kill the police officers. This was the evidence that Herrera presented in order to argue that he should not be executed. None of the five people had reason to lie. Yet the Supreme Court decided that this was not important and that the actual innocence was not a matter for appeal. They're not they're not debating whether that was real evidence. Mm-hmm. They're just saying, yeah, you may be innocent, but you're not right to appeal since the defendant could instead work to get a pardon. Imagine being jailed, about to be executed for a crime you did not commit, and having to depend on an elected official to take mercy on you, even when this will ensure that he is portrayed as soft on crime. This is what happened to Herrera. Although he appealed to the governor, he was denied, and the heartless, lawless future president who denied an innocent man his life was then Governor George W. Bush of Texas. Did they kill the poor man? Yes. Only four months, an innocent man. Only four months after the Supreme Court ruled the actual innocence did not matter, uh, Leonel Torres Herrera was executed. His last statement was, quote, I am innocent, innocent, innocent. Make no mistake about this. I owe society nothing. Continue the struggle for human rights, helping those who are innocent. I am an innocent man, and something very wrong is taking place tonight. May God bless you all. I am ready. Wow. And, and that's very sad. Right. That's, that's, that's horrific. He says, of course, the court also noted that assuming that, in quote, a capital case, a truly persuasive demonstration of actual innocence made after trial would render the execution of the defendant unconstitutional. The threshold showing for such an assumed right would necessarily be extraordinarily high. So, in other words, it, it would have to be only in extreme cases, even if they knew for sure that that you had evidence to show you're innocent, only in rare cases would you even have a shot hmm. at having it stopped. How can that be justice? Well, I mean, it can't really. It, uh, just, it just can't. <laughs> but here's another here's another venue of it. Mm-hmm. The Herrera versus Collins decisions especially frightening and consider the light of the falsely convicted persons who have been proven innocent through DNA analysis, which mm-hmm. we now have. It only shows how indisputably false is the idea that our system protects the innocent. And while the government can continue to preach what it wants us to believe, it is widely apparent that the innocent, especially after they had their day in court, no longer matter, even when they have incontrovertible evidence of their innocence. The Innocence Project, a nonprofit organization created by Barry Shack and Peter Neufeld, strives through DNA analysis to free the innocent who have been wrongly convicted and incarcerated Unsurprisingly, one of its discoveries was that governmental misconduct was a factor in 50% of their first 74 DNA exonerations. Hmm. In other words, the government purposely did something wrong hmm. that led to these people getting It reminds up. me of that scene in The Thin Blue Line where the, uh, the convicted quote-unquote gentleman, well, he was convicted, there's no quotes mm-hmm. there, convicted of a crime that he didn't really commit, 
where he's talking about his first interview with the detective, where the detective shows up and mm-hmm. hands him the hands him the yellow pad and the and the pen and pulls a gun on him and says, "You will confess." And he's like, "To what?" And they wrote out. I guess they had already had a prefabbed confession. Yeah. And he says, "You're going to write this in your own hand, or I'm going to shoot you, or something." And mm-hmm. he said no, and the guy, uh, you know, pistol whipped him. And there are lots of cases where yeah, that scenario yeah, that's can not, produce forward. It's, never, it's not that it's never happened. Yeah. Uh, he, he says here uh, the majority of these cases of you know government misconduct. The majority included suppression of exculpatory evidence by police and prosecution, knowing use of false testimony, coercing witnesses, and fabricating evidence. These are the actions of the same governments whose schools so strongly claim to believe in innocent until guilt is proven. Hmm. These are the same governments who want to be a moral authority and teach morality to society. Hmm. Uh, The prosecutors and police officers who are supposed to enforce the law are actually ensuring that the innocent are proven guilty all the while claiming that their suspects are proved innocent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is, is though, if they believe their lies, why would they suppress and fabricate evidence? Why would they feel the need to coerce witnesses? Either they want the innocent to be jailed, or they actually do not believe in the presumption and feel that those whom they suspect are guilty are indeed guilty, no matter what the law says, no matter what the evidence contradicts. Uh, the examples of this type of conduct are wide-ranging, but one extreme example, and you listen to this case, mm-hmm. is the case of Jeffrey R. McDonald, M.D. Dr. McDonald was a 26-year-old Army captain living on base with his wife and two young daughters and leading a very fulfilling life. Having accomplished the goals he had set for himself, Jeffrey was a successful and happy man. But that happiness was shattered on uh, February 1970. Intruders broke into his home, brutally murdered his wife and two daughters, and attempted to murder Jeff himself. Resuscitated by the military police, he was rushed uh, to the hospital where he remained in the intensive care unit for a week for treatment and multiple stab wounds, as well as a collapsed lung. While on the way to the hospital, Jeff described the intruders as a woman with long blonde hair covered by a floppy hat and two other males, one white and the other black. With these descriptions he provided to police, he hoped that justice would be served and those responsible for the killings would be held responsible. Yet, rather than follow up, the government focused on Jeff as its prime suspect Mm. from the beginning of the case, even when the Army had investigated and cleared him and had given him an honorable discharge. Well, how did he stab himself to death? Yeah, he really believed in it. It took them nine years until one of the Army lawyers assigned to the case, Brian Murtaugh, was transferred to the Department of Justice and realized that the case had not yet been closed. As there were no suspects, Murtaugh decided to refocus attention on Jeff, and his witch hunt led to what amounted to a story backed by only the most minute of circumstantial evidence. Unfortunately for Jeff, the one witness who could have helped, Helena Steckley, who had testified for the prosecution so many times in many other cases and had herself confessed to the crime, was determined to be an unreliable witness, and therefore... Those persons to whom uh, she had confessed were not permitted to relate the testi- testimony to Jeff's jury. They weren't allowed to say that she had confessed to it. During her testimony, Helena admitted to owning a blonde wig and floppy hat, but it destroyed them because they connected her to the murders. Still, the jury convicted Jeff, and he was sentenced to three life terms. His conviction was originally overturned by the U.S. Court of Appeals, and he had a taste of freedom until 82 when the Supreme Court reinstated his conviction and returned him to prison. 
Of course, Jeff filed multiple appeals, but the trial judge denied them all. Helena Steckley continued to confess to various individuals her role in the murder. Jeff also found out that the prosecution had hidden exculpatory evidence and had lied to the jury. These would be government people. Mm-hmm. Claiming that no signs of intruders were found, even though Jeff found case file notes stating that a long blonde wig fibers had been found, as well as black wool fibers not linked to the house. He also learned that a crime lab tech had falsely testified that the synthetic blonde hair found at the scene did not come from a wig. The same crime lab tech would later be fired from the lab when evidence was found of multiple deceptions in cases. Hmm. One of the prosecutors, James Blackburn, was later disbarred and charged with 12 counts of dishonesty, including embezzlement and changing court documents. A former U.S. Marshal came forward 26 years later, and he says, how could he have lived with himself waiting so long to come forward while Jeff was in prison? 26 years. Wow. Avowing Indeed. and passing a polygraph test, stating that he had witnessed a conversation between Helena Stackley and the prosecutor where she confessed to committing the murder. And the prosecutor threatened to indict her for murder if she testified to that. So even when DNA results were finally able in 2006, eight and a half years after they'd been ordered, and multiple hairs were found at the scene that did not match Jeff or the rest of the family, one of which was grasped in the two-year-old's hand as if torn from the attacker's head. The federal judge who replaced the original trial judge refused to grant a new trial. That's terrible. Finally, in 2007, after Helena had died, Jeff heard from her mother, who stated that Helena had confessed to her and explained that she could not tell the truth on the stand because she was afraid of the prosecutor, and the mother could not come forward earlier because she, too, was afraid. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even with all this evidence, the trial judge had that since Helena was dead... Even if all the testimony about and from her was true, there was no way anyone could know how her fear of the prosecutor affected her testimony. And therefore, the appeal was denied just actual innocence was of no import to the government. All that mattered was that he was not denied any constitutional protections at his trial. Hmm. It says, doesn't the Constitution protect against wrongful imprisonment? I want to know what finally happened to that guy. After 30 years of fighting for his innocence... Jeff, with the help of the Innocence Project, has filed another appeal with the Fourth Circuit. He might be able to make it out of jail for his 66th birthday and be given the freedom that innocent people have as a natural birthright. Wow. There's people like that all over the country. And, you know, Robert Hyde has been on you know our show a number mm-hmm. of times. He says these are the kind of things that really motivate him as a Christian right now, that you he know, would like to get involved in these kind of things. It's funny you mention that. Me too. I find myself praying a lot uh, in the mornings. For uh, well, specifically our brothers who are in prison around the world, right. our you know Indonesian brothers, mm-hmm. our Indian brothers who are thrown typically in, Christian yeah, brothers, right? Yeah. When I say brothers, I mean Christian brothers. That's right. Yeah, uh, Afghan, mm-hmm. you know, Iranian brothers. Sure. And that's the thing, you know, that's that's one of those things that we're commanded, I believe, in Hebrews mm-hmm. to pray for our brothers in prison. Mm-hmm. And we don't, you know, when was the last time we prayed for them? That, well, not only that, yes, that's essential, mm-hmm. but what about people who are unfairly imprisoned, even if they're not Christians? Yeah. I you know, know, if Christians can't come to their defense, I mean, go back and read the prophets, see what they had to say. Can I read you another little different example? Something a little different? Yeah. Something uplifting? Yeah, this, this, yeah, this will pick you up. Uh, Anastasio Prieto was driving a truck toward home on U.S. Route 54 north of El Paso. A late summer night in August 2007, while enjoying the beautiful countryside passing him by, he noticed a way station and pulled over to have his truck inspected. A state trooper approached him and asked him if he could search his truck for contraband. Not protective of his own privacy, he said, of course, knowing that no contraband would be found. 
during his conversation, he did mention that he happened to be carrying $23,700, his life savings, used to pay bills and to maintain the truck, which he carried with him because he did not trust banks. What he did not realize that his opinion of banks would be his undoing. The money was confiscated and Anastasia was detained, photographed and fingerprinted while canine dogs sniffed his truck. The state police, who believed that Anastasio must be guilty of something, turned the cash they seized from him over to the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration. Though no evidence of illegal substance was found, the DEA explained to Anastasio that they would be keeping the money and that in 30 days he would receive notice of federal proceedings to forfeit that money permanently to the government. He was told that if he wanted to get the money back, he would have to petition the court and prove that the money was legally obtained by him and not the product of criminal conduct. That's terrible. That's just so bad. Yeah. No, not even a thought of any kind of conduct. He says, sadly, this case is not an isolated incident. No. Well, we just related that that story earlier about the, the you know that video shot of the the, the gentleman who was the car yeah. detailer. Two right. grand, he was out. Right. You know? Here's here's another one similar to it. A uh, similar case, uh, Hermanio Gomez-Gonzalez and his friends had pooled their savings together, a sum total of $124,000, to order to purchase a truck. They found the truck they wanted and agreed to a use, uh, with a used car dealer in Chicago to purchase it for cash. Unfortunately, when Emiliano arrived in Chicago, the truck had been sold. Rather than spend the money flying back and not having a credit card of his own, he requested that a friend rent a car for him. He packed the money in the truck and headed home to return the money to all the, those in the partnership. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he was pulled over by a Nebraska State Trooper on Interstate 80. Mm-hmm. He searched the car and found the money. Of course, the money was automatically seized because a canine sniffed drug residue in the trunk of a rental car. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because didn't we talk about a, uh, a here? There was a show we did that like 100% of the dollar bills in Washington, D.C. have cocaine on them. No, I don't remember I, I that. Thought you, I thought you read it. <laughs> I don't I thought remember read that. It. Okay. Um, okay. Eighth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals held that possession of a large sum of cash is strong evidence of a connection to drug activity. And so you being, know, being rich, in effect. Well, I'll, and, and well he explained he was heading money to buy a truck. Yeah. Now, you know, maybe a lot of times you do find drug people with a lot of money. Yeah. But then again, what if that guy was you? What if that was one of your relatives? Well, sure. That's that's the that's the the real fallacy, the real sophistry in the the argument. Well, okay, this may be something, but that didn't, you know, that's something I shouldn't be worried about. Well, the point, the whole point is, is that it's just a matter of time before any one of these things may happen to you. That's right. It may happen tomorrow. And if you don't stand up for these people, whose maybe your name you can't pronounce, or they're a different religion, it'll be your turn. You know, um, it, it's funny. Uh, there was a case he mentioned. About a guy, uh, a young man who'd been arrested for illegally transporting women across the George Washington Bridge. Mm-hmm. The p- police arrested and charged him. They seized the car that he had used for such purposes. Lucky for the police, the car was a beautiful $85,000 Mercedes Benz Coupe. Uh, present day version would be about 160 grand. Mm-hmm. Even luckier for the chief prosecutor of the county, mm-hmm. the police proceeded to gift the car to him, the prosecutor. How nice. And he proceeded to use it as his own personal car. Imagine the outrage of being presumed innocent, having your car seized, and then walking down the street, observing the men who had stolen it, driving it. Mm-hmm. Imagine then you had had no legal recourse, that the law was meant to protect you instead validated the theft. Unfortunately the, for the prosecutor, the defendant who was driving the car did not own the Mercedes. The father did. Needless to say, when the young man and his father petitioned me, talking about the judge, to have the car returned, I did just that. 
A few years later, I was accosted by the former prosecutor's wife as the judge who had taken her husband's car away. The former prosecutor who used the car had since been convicted of unrelated crimes, incarcerated, disbarred, and presently works as a night security guard at a hotel. Awesome. Yeah. I wonder what the wife does. <clears throat> who knows? Uh, but uh, just just to sort of uh, wrap up here, uh, it talks about the... Um, using uh, military tribunals. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he says, the last time the government used a military tribunal in this country to try foreigners who violated the rules of war involved Nazi saboteurs during World War II. Uh, they'd come up in plain close of a, you know, up out of the water and mm-hmm. would try to do sabotage here. They were tried before military tribunal, and President Roosevelt based his order to do so on the existence of formal congressional declaration of war against Germany. Mm. In the uproar caused by Attorney General Eric Holder's announcement that the alleged planners of the 911 attacks are to be tried in U.S. District Court in New York City, and the suspects of the attack and the coal will go on trial in military uh, tribunals, the public discourse have lost sight of the fundamental principles that guide the government when it makes such decisions. Unfortunately, the government has lost sight of its principles as well. Um, I'm going to run out of time here to share some of this and some other important things here, but I recommend people get this book. Because what he says basically is that a bunch of these terrorists were all t- were all uh, tried in federal court. Timothy McVeigh, mm-hmm. uh, Omar Abdul Rahman, who had 93 blew up the World Trade Center, Zacharias Musawi was accused of 911 attacks. Were all tried in federal courts. Mm-hmm. The American Taliban, the would-be shoot bomber Richard Reed, were all tried in federal courts. Even the Fort Dix Six, who tried a plot uh, to blow up an army post, were tried in federal court. And the sun still rose on the mornings after their convictions. Even doing using our court system, it was still able to work. Uh, and he shows basically that uh, you know our president purposely avoided declaring formal war powers uh, to give him more latitude to do whatever he pleased. It's interesting. It's interesting to hear that because Colonel Wilkerson, from a practical standpoint, purely pragmatic, he said he would he trusted the military tribunal eminently more than he did. The uh, federal court, federal and state court systems. Who said that? Uh, Colonel Wilkerson, I believe. He was on our show and said that. Well, you know, he's probably had a positive experience with people. Yeah. But um, people don't have the rights they have. Yeah, that's true. With other stuff. I will close here with just this conclusion. There's much more that people need to read in this book, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, before you finish reading this book, he says, Return to those quotations at the beginning. Did I prove my case? If you believe in God, if you believe he, capital he is truth, but a Roman governor asks if anyone can know the truth, and a modern-day American vice president marvels at its debasement by the government, and two philosophers claim that we are right for being plucked into the baskets of the deceivers. Mm-hmm. Um, we know uh, where, uh, let's see, where his forebearers, talks about the president's forebearers in our government, have brought us war, fear, power, loss of innocent life, loss of liberty, and loss of property. He says his friend Lou, Lou Rockwell uh, says that uh, we all have lust within us that we much suppress, including the government. And the most pernicious of these lusts is the lust to dominate. And uh, so then he has some suggestion on what we need to do, including a political transformation in our country and not tolerate government officials that lie to us and yeah. it probably he says it'll probably take a new party political party that will need to get rid of the people who are too corrupted and yeah. the current ones that are there hmm. and he he says the hopes hopefully the young people uh to do that so anyway 
If we fear our own government, if we accept its deceptions, its lies to us, and we take no action to redress them, our freedoms are doomed. That's how he closes the books. Wow. Bird, would you come tell our listeners how they can contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, that's it. Any comments you have? That was uh, pretty heavy-handed. Yeah. But like in a very interesting way. Isn't it refreshing to hear a gentleman who speaks straight, even if it may be controversial yeah. to people's ears, mm-hmm. but he makes his case and he makes his point clear and he gives sure. you food for thought? Yeah. I sure hope that we can help carry that on here. Me too. For our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, and then yeah. we can all work this all this stuff out together. Working Iron sharpening out together. Iron. Oh, yeah. we got to go. Tomorrow's Tomorrow's mm-hmm. Tremors. Till then, we hope your future's always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom being deployed in the uh, response of truth to, for the truth force, Bionic. I don't know if there's punctuation in there or not, but it's a good middle name. I'm sure everybody enjoys it. Tom Rapid Action Truth Force Bionic. Like it. Dun, 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 that requires dun, a jumpsuit with that kind of name. Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you again uh, for this week of Future Quake. And as you know, we always end it sort of differently on Fridays. Um, we normally have an interview from Monday through Thursday. We break up into four segments. Uh, Judge Napolitano um, is in such demand that he's more than gracious to give us a half hour on Monday to talk about his book, Lies the Government Told Us. Mm-hmm. And so the last few days, we've been doing our own review of extra elements of his book. There's a whole lot more in that book that you can get information on that you mm-hmm. need to get. But uh, today's Friday, and what does that mean it for our listeners? It means that we're going to review that the spiritual and physical kings of the earth, what they're up to, otherwise known as Revelation 18 News. Well, you know, I'm feeling in a good mood, so I will give you credit for that. Thank you. Also known as Tomorrow's Tremors or Today's Review of the Future's News. If you just wanted that title, you just should have asked for it. Oh, I thought that's what I did. Well, <laughs> before we get into the news... I work for the government. I think we have something big to report, although, you know, we record this almost two weeks in advance, and we have to do that because mm-hmm. of... So this will this will air <coughs> almost a month after it. Well, not that long. Adjusting for the uh, schedules of our people, and if we have to do last-minute changes. Mm-hmm. So for, for being future quake, sometimes we're a little past quake. Mm-hmm. But um, at the time of this recording, we have just exited a few days ago mm-hmm. the Last Days 2010 conference mm-hmm. here in Nashville. Yes. Uh, can you give us your uh, opinion of what you thought about the festivity? Uh, well, uh, overall, I thought it was very, very good. Uh, I was very impressed overall that uh, among us speakers... There was such an incredible feeling of unity, even though we may not agree entirely on small. Yeah, you know, come from very different paths. Yeah, Christian walk, yeah, very different. Yeah, ways uh, to get where we um, are. And people got saved. You know, people got saved because of this one conference. person found accepted Christ, and three were baptized. Mm-hmm. In fact, Joe Jordan was down in the water, he was, and he was in the dunk. Tank. You know, he told me earlier that day. Mm-hmm. He said the Lord had 
just given him a word before on this trip that he would be baptizing somebody on this trip. Well, it's funny so he you packed some that. shorts and a T-shirt because of that. It's funny you mention that because while I was sitting up there at the table, you know, that the, that question, they had a question and answer session Saturday mm-hmm. night, and the last question was about baptism. And after I had sort of thrown my two cents in right. about Ephesians 2.8 mm-hmm. uh, through 2.10. Several people did. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I felt like I needed to say, look, because uh, he had made the announcement that mm-hmm. somebody was going to get baptized. Yeah. And uh, I felt like, well, no, not just one person, but more. But I just couldn't mm-hmm. get the mic, right. you know. And then it turns out, like, God huh. didn't need me, as usual. <laughs> yeah, me so, neither. Yeah. But, you know, it was a, a wonderful time. Um, I know one person who's pretty good at doing head counts did one, and he thought at one time he counted 160 people. Wow. Um, I'm not sure, but it's pretty close to that. Yeah. Which far Any exceeded. people, like, two-headed or something? Could have been. Like some chimeras and yeah. things like that. Yeah. But, uh it it uh, certainly exceeded what was expected because except for some announcements on Future Quake and Pit Radio and mm-hmm. and I think uh, uh, Tom Horn mm-hmm. um, put something on Raiders at one time. Which mm-hmm. by the way, he asked me how the conference went. And I sent back and he was just praising the Lord too. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, it was word of mouth. But yeah. we had people from 22 states that came wow. for this two day conference and and, one, and from one. Vancouver. Yeah. And, uh, man, there was just a real spirit of love there. Everybody was mm-hmm. so excited. Got to meet a lot of Futurians. A whole lot of those people were Futurians. Yeah. And it was cool, wasn't it? Yeah, I think, really. I, I don't, I think I would, I, you know, it's funny. I told people at church, and I really meant it, that it felt a little bit like our own, our own chapter 29 of the book of Acts. You know, mm-hmm. there was people coming up to me, and we would talk about stuff, and I was just praying with people, and, yeah. uh, I received prayer. In hands from a number of people, and mm-hmm. I administered prayer to other people. It both was amazing. During the course it, it of the two amazing, days. It was amazing, wasn't it? Uh, we didn't raise anybody from the dead, but... Well, know, maybe next year. There's always next year. Checked <laughs> a whole bunch of yeah. the other things out of the box. Yeah. You know. We, you know, it started close to around 8 o'clock uh, mm-hmm. on uh, Friday morning. Mm-hmm. I think I got home sometime after 11, mm-hmm. breaking up then. And then started just, just right after that on Saturday morning mm-hmm. and went till I think I got home 11.30 or so Saturday mm-hmm. night. So... People people got their money and effort worth in terms of just yeah. teaching. We had eight different speakers, uh, ten teaching sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, I presented some new data. That yes. Now, yours was new, except we had an opportunity to talk about it on Future Quake yeah. recently. Yeah. Um, but you had presented to you know some other people mm-hmm. there in our audience. Mm-hmm. I presented some brand new stuff I hadn't really talked about anywhere. I'll tell you, you were the talk of the the talk of the conference as usual. Well, probably yeah. like. Kicked like, him out of there. Right no, no, the there were there were two broadcasters that came to me and said, "We're really going to have to. I really want to do a follow up of what he presented." Really? Yeah. Well, it was funny because we had uh, Derek uh, Gilbert, Gilbert of, of Peering into Darkness Radio, Pid Radio, as our MC host, mm-hmm. and he always had his points in his very you know mm-hmm. sharp th- thoughts on it. But evidently, he had sent some information from my presentation and twittered it to Sharon, his mm-hmm. wife, and she had already found some new stuff. Mm-hmm. Just they're listening real time. Yeah. And I guess there were people that were actually following via Twitter the conference yeah, as he was updating them real time. Yeah. What I found what I found interesting, speaking of Derek's contribution, which which was great. Mm-hmm. What an, what a great MC. Yeah. But one of the things that was interesting in, in that in closing those things was when he asked the obvious question about the sleep paralysis, you know, how many people here have experienced this? Yeah. Forty percent of the hands are there about to went up. Right. You know? Right. It was really and that gave further reinforcement. You know, and these are people 
who, you know, usually most of them are pretty mature, been following the Lord for some time, are serious about spiritual mm-hmm. warfare, yeah. and they're even being subject to it. Yeah. And that's why it means it's so important. Mm-hmm. You know, I also asked a raise of hands during my talk about how many people were from Nashville, because we knew we had people from everywhere. Mm-hmm. Andrew Hoffman, by the way, came. Yeah. Uh, from uh, the New World Order Eugenics Slept on Wars. on the couch, drooled on it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Drooled all over Y'all it. kept the, the forces of, of hell away. From that apartment between you two and Chris White, there, <laughs> they uh, they did not prevail against that apartment that no. weekend. But people from everywhere. But I did ask how many people were from Nashville, and a big group raised their hands. Mm-hmm. And how many of them listened on WNO? Mm-hmm. And most of those people raised their hands, mm-hmm. which was an encouragement to me. Yeah, that we, we're still getting some good listenership even from the radio, as as mm-hmm. crazy as we are. You know, our internet family are usually listening to some similar shows like Pit Radio and things. Mm-hmm. They know what they get with us. But I think WNO is just listening to the WNO listeners just listening to WNO. Well, and we're looking to get people who aren't used to what we talk about in yeah, our community. We're, we're reaching out in to the, within the Christian family. Yeah. And they are hearing it, and they put feet to their interest by mm-hmm. coming to the conference. Yeah. And I was encouraged by it. There's Me so too. many things that we could say. Were there any other big things? Uh, there's a documentary being done. Mm-hmm. Um, the... Presentations, or at least they're either going to be a subset of this documentary or they're going to be released on their own, I guess, one or the other. Mm -hmm. So people who couldn't go there will be able to get pieces of it from there. But it was a very inspirational time, to me, a time of real revival. It was, you know, that's that's an even better word. I was going to say it was a time of refreshing for me spiritually. uh, as But really, I think, uh, sort of revival in the sense that in the sense that I think God moved mm-hmm. in a way that everybody sort of... It was funny because everybody I talked to felt like the Lord was going to move. You know, yeah. Tom had mentioned it. Uh, Tom Dunn, Tom the organizer. Dunn, yeah, brother yeah. Tom Dunn. Mm-hmm. And several other people, I had talked to some of the other presenters beforehand, and they yeah. had all expressed the similar feeling that they really felt that God was going to move. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was just fascinated by that because... Uh, I guess I talked to 10 people, both presenters and non-presenters, you know, mm-hmm. people just attending. And they all said, I just really, f- part of the thing, I'm excited because I really feel like God is going to move. Wow. And, uh, I mean. People are expecting it. Yeah. And God does move often when people have that yeah. sense of immediacy. Yeah. Uh, if, if if you also want to find out more about it, um, Derek Gilbert of PID Radio did live brief mm-hmm. interviews with the speakers. Mm-hmm. And he has it at PIDradio.com, P-I-D com. And look under View from the Bunker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see. V-F-T-B. Mm-hmm. And one of the top ones there, you'll see yep. a report from the conference. I'll tell you what. I I will. I was at my probably at my worst as far as being a radio interviewee. You're so, kidding. Oh, my gosh. I thought you sounded good. I listened to it. Well, well thank you so much for saying that. But uh, I listened back to it, and it sounded like uh, obviously somebody who didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> I don't believe that. I don't believe Which may you have know, been the case. Well, I don't my, know. Well, maybe, but but maybe, thank, thank goodness Derek was there to sort of pull the... Yeah. What maybe is going on is that I sound so completely off my rocker that it makes you look good here on Future Quake, and you didn't have me there. I, I don't... I, I was think, sort of I like your Jerry Lewis to... Uh, well, that's one hypothesis, but I don't think it's one that holds any water. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's my summary. I guess we need to read some stories. Yeah. Uh, you want to go first or me? Uh, I'll, go, I'll go first on this one because I feel it has some special import to our listeners. Okay. Uh, special Army Unit ready to be deployed on American soil just before November elections. This is from The Examiner. 
in October of this year, one month prior to the November midterm elections, a special army unit known as the Consequence Management Response Force Whoa. will be ready for deployment on American soil, if so ordered by the president. The special force, which is the new name given to the 1st Brigade Combat Team of the 3rd Infantry, has been training at Fort Stewart, Georgia, and is composed of 80,000 troops. Wow. Remember, this is, that's really the interesting thing about this. Uh, there are several things that are interesting about this. One of the things that we talked about was just how many this 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 uh, response team several years ago started as twenty five to thirty five hundred people, and now it's up to eighty thousand people. Uh, uh, according to the Army Times, they may be called upon to help with civil unrest and crowd control, or to deal with potentially horrific scenarios such as massive poisoning and chaos in response to a chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, high yield explosive, or CBRNE attack. So they're really thinking this is coming. Mm-hmm. Yes. The key phrase is, may be called upon to help with civil unrest. This afternoon, a local radio talk show host reported that he had been in contact with a member of the military. This military source stated, stated that the armed forces had been alerted to the strong possibility that civil unrest may occur in the United States this summer prior to the midterm elections of 2010. The source described this as our long, hot summer of discontent that could be eerily reminiscent of the summer of 1968 when riots (laughs) broke out in many of our largest cities. They're going to have to really work hard Mm -hmm. to try to, like, stoke them and make them happen, right? Mm -hmm. Like the government did before with the FBI COINTELPRO, where they actually uh, jump-started the people to make Mm -hmm. them have riots. Yeah. Uh, However, the summer of 2010 could well be played. Uh, in 1968, the major players were war protesters. This time, the outrage simmering beneath the surface of American society involves a broad cross-section of the heartland, and most of them are heavily armed. It is highly unlikely that these citizens would ever initiate an armed conflict of any kind. In their view, gun rights are for self-defense and for defense against tyrannical government, which our founders regarded as the most dangerous force on Earth. However, it has become clear that other groups may well initiate violence in order to start an incident that would give Obama and a rogue Congress a reason to implement martial law, confiscate the citizens' guns, and force curfews and suspend all future elections until such time as, as it is deemed safe to proceed with human liberty as encapsulated in the right to vote. Hey, let me just interrupt you here, <coughs> to be fair. Mm-hmm. Haven't we had stories like this before every election? That Bush was going to suspend it in 2004 Yeah, but he didn't have an 80,000 strong... Uh, group of army people called the Compensation Response Team, or whatever it is, Consequence Management Response You Force. think this is actually more legit than all those other times they said that it was going to stop the election? No, but the the difference is, is he has 80,000 troops now whose sole mission is to mm-hmm. is to go out and be the boot mm-hmm. to the citizen's head. And they're probably chomping the bit, hoping to get some action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, continuing mm-hmm. here... Uh, Adding to this growing unrest over continued high unemployment, the coming spike in interest rates and inflation and the still blowing outage over the manner in which Obama and the Democrats shoved Obamacare down the throats of the citizens and all of the ingredients are present in, a, in what's called a, uh, are present for a major F5 tornado to sweep across the heartland. Poorly executed uh, writing. To what extent would, shoulder, would soldiers use deadly force during civil unrest should the con- consequence management response team be utilized? Question mark. During the anti-war rights of the 1960s, they killed student protesters. What about now? Now, who's this, who, who did this story? This was from the Examiner. Um, which Examiner? Uh, UK. Okay. The military source cited by the radio host today was asked this very question. 
He would merely say that the culture of the U.S. military is changing. Half support Obama, and ha the other half are dead set against him, hmm. which is like an ultimate not answer mm -hmm. of the question. Right. His conclusion, there is no way to know for sure if they if they would obey an order to open fire on ordinary citizens. Excuse me, I'm stuttering bad. Except they were trained to do that in Iraq. Uh -huh. And that's why we had the Fort Stewart group. They said they were trained to yeah. already get used to that. Yeah. So Interesting. A, yeah. I guess you, we'll know. You are correct. And, you know, during the, the last election cycle, mm -hmm. you know, that was sort of put out there. But the difference now is they have 80,000 strong. Right. You know, force, specifically for yeah. civil unrest. Could be. You know, I say we always have to be sort of self-policing because you see stuff like in the Internet that I do in email baskets where mm -hmm. everybody gets fired up and, you know, there's getting ready to be Sharia law next week, you know, and that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's but, Sharia uh, law. Here they're they're coming right. over the fence mm -hmm. driving yeah. around in a Toyota. Well, you know, I've sort of been on a drug kick lately. Uh, not just <laughs> not just the, uh, the, the subject we had this week talking, but, you know, my talk at the last day's conference was on the role of sorcery and drugs mm -hmm. in opening portals mm -hmm. in the last day spirit portals trying to keep your mind number and i t and i mentioned there how there's more and more stories that keep coming up in the news mm -hmm. and these stories are actual press releases that are being put into the public to yeah, try not, to promote something yeah, Th these are all coming up for a purpose yeah it's not a um they're, they're press releases. Right. Yeah. And Saturday, you know, when I was going to the conference, I saw another one where now they're really promoting psilocybin, <clears throat> the ingredient for magic mushrooms. Psilocybin. Or that, too. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> here's another story. just came out on the same theme. Mm -hmm. This is from, I don't know why we're reading U.K. stories, so this is from the Daily Mail. It's the place you can go to get news about your Well, you, you get, yeah, you get better stories there. This is, a, I mean, a major newspaper mm -hmm. in, in London, the Daily Mail. LSD and ecstasy being used to combat cancer, cancer, cancer anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. They're finding all sorts of use for hallucinogenic drugs, by the way. Yeah. It'll, it'll serve it'll like pay your taxes and you know, toenail fungus. Yeah. You know, they're suggesting it. Hallucinogenic drugs, including LSD and ecstasy, <coughs> are being used by doctors. Can you imagine if you went to your doctor and said, "Here's some ecstasy." Uh, in tests to treat conditions, <laughs> yeah, we just need, you just need enough LSD. That's right, yeah. including cancer, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Scientists are once again striving to prove that psychedelic drugs can be of medical benefit more than four decades after authorities clamped down on their use for both recreational and research purposes. There are a handful of studies currently taking place across the U.S. with drugs like LSD, ecstasy, and psilocybin, the main agreement of magic mushrooms. While the research is still preliminary, early results from a New York University study suggest that participants are less fearful of death and have less general anxiety. They also said to have greater acceptance of the dying process with no major side effect. Hmm. Rick Doblin, executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, said, There is now more psychedelic research taking place in the world than any time in the last 40 years. Well, this is in line with my premise, you know, about... Yeah. But this is a purpose. We're, we're, we're being given these drugs for a purpose. It's spiritual, white I think. With black curtains. <laughs> uh, a white with rabbit. The doctor. Okay, we're at the end of the beginning of the Renaissance. That's how he phrased it. He said that more than 1,200 people attended a conference in California last week on psychedelic science. But doing the research was not easy, Mr. Doblin and others say, with U.S. government funders still leery and drug companies not interested in the compounds they can't patent. It's an old money deal. That pretty much leaves private donors. So you get private people from foundations you don't know that are running these things. There's still a lot of resistance to it, said David Nichols, a Purdue University professor of medical 
uh, Medicinal Chemistry and President of the Hefter Institute, which is supporting the NYU study. The old hippie thing in the 60s has kind of left a bad taste in the mouth of the public at large. When you tell people you're treating people with psychedelics, the first thing that comes to mind is day glow art and side-eyed shirts. In the sky with diamonds. Yeah, thank you for the musical background. Psilocybin has been shown to evoke powerful spiritual experiences in the four to six hours it affects the brain. Yeah, with what spirit, I would say. Mm. A, a study published in 2008, in fact, found that even 14 months after healthy volunteers had taken a single dose, most said they were still feeling and behaving better because of the experience. They also said the drug had produced one of the five most spiritually significant experiences they'd ever had. Mm. Let, let, let me just stop here and make a point. Earlier this week, mm. when we were interviewing Dr. Napoli, or we were his book, talking his mm. book, we were talking about the war on drugs. And Christians are going to say, oh, how could you ever even consider the thought of drugs being legal, even though all these evil things are being done during the war on drugs? Mm-hmm. They're, they're trying to stop people who are having these things that create mild sensations of, you know, mind experiences and things like marijuana mm-hmm. and stuff. Throw in jail, but yet we have drugs that are being given by doctors to do the exact same thing, only worse. But they can give prescriptions for it. One pill makes you smaller. One pill makes you small. <laughs> Taller. One pill makes you small. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> one that mother gives you. Don't do anything at all. Yeah. Okay. Salosi- okay. Uh, a study published in 2008 found that even 14 months after healthy volunteers had taken a single dose. Most said they were still feeling and behaving better because of the experience. They also uh, said they didn't induce spiritual experiences. Experts emphasize people shouldn't try psilocybin on their own because it can be harmful, sometimes causing bouts of anxiety and paranoia. Purple haze that's, that's the fine print. Going in my brain. And wait till I start singing during your stories. <laughs> but the NYU study led by Dr. Stephen Ross is testing whether that drug experience can help with the nine months of psychotherapy each participant also gets. The therapy also helps patients live fuller, richer lives with the time they have left. Of course, they're stoned, but they're, you know, yeah. uh, they get a two, two drug dose experience, but only one of them involves psilocybin. The other one is a dose of niacin. Um, hmm. the three people. Does this, does this, do they, after taking this, I'd be willing, I'd be really interested to see what percentage has an insatiable urge to listen to the Grateful Dead. I, you know, I don't know. I didn't yeah. say anything here about that. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, maybe they have pictures riding in the future mobile, you know, across the <laughs> sky. Uh, it says, Dr. Ross, meanwhile, thinks patients might benefit from more than one dose of the drug during psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. The study permits only one dose, but they'd ask for a second. They, yeah. More and more stories, they, there's an active pitch to sell these drugs to the public. You know, I might yeah. think the government is running an illegal thing to try to lock people up for having a little pot or something like that. That's because the, the government, we know our, in, our military, our uh, intelligence services are making money, running black programs, flying the stuff in. They're mm-hmm. growing in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, we know law enforcement is confiscating people's property, even if they didn't have drugs, yep. using the drug war as a means to hang on to mm-hmm. it. So it's evil from that, regardless of yeah. what the substance is. We let some drugs like alcohol go. We don't let these go. Yeah. But then on the other hand, we've got these really, really dangerous drugs that contact spirits. Yeah. And they're saying full like steam to, ahead. Yeah. In conclusion, I would just like to say, and they're buying the stairway to heaven. heaven. <laughs> you don't hear that on like Back to the Bible or whatever. Oh my. You know? Yeah. You got oh a story my. for us? Oh my. <laughs> I finally jumped the shark. I'm sorry, listeners. They're incense, all... peppermints, <laughs> incense. What was that other one that we listened to about uh, 
Arkeezy? Arkeezy? Yeah, Frank Arkeezy. Yeah, that was Arkeezy. some wild stuff, man. Yeah, I wish we could play it. Yeah. Yep. Okay, story. Okay. Five Israelis charged with organ trafficking. Uh, this is something I've been covering. At but, by the way, I bet you a lot of our listeners think that we're part of that study with psychotic substances. <laughs> yeah, this is just an yeah, outgrowth. this is part of our treatment, yeah, the Future yeah. Quake show. Just an outgrowth, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, five Israelis charged with organ trafficking. This, again, comes from the Guardian UK. We've got a, a threefer here as far as UK mm-hmm. stories. Uh, the ring exploited desperate condition of sick, pe- sick people, said Israeli police. Israel has charged five of its citizens, including a retired army general, with operating a nationwide organ trafficking ring that ensnared dozens of potential victims. The charges include human trafficking for the purpose of organ harvesting and money laundering. Wow. Yep. The indictment says that the ring exploited the desperate condition of sick sick people and called it a form of modern slavery. The traffickers allegedly offered up up to $100,000 per kidney, but in at least two cases did not pay the donors who were sought through advertisements and then flown from Israel to Europe, South America, or Southeast Asia, where the organs were extracted in illegal procedures. Israeli law bans organ sales. Which is very short, very sweet. Um, but that's something we've been covering. I've covered here, I think, on several occasions that, uh, you know, and there was all those people, all those Orthodox Jews were caught in New Jersey yeah, uh, right. in the money laundering and organ right. sale thing that involved... A I mean, they couldn't sell drugs just like the government people do. They no, had to they sell had, something different. Yeah. They had to do it like the Chinese government and sell yeah, drugs. Yeah, so they were... A bunch of these Orthodox rabbis were involved with it as well as a state senator of New Jersey, a couple of mayors, mm-hmm. New Jersey mayors, and I think uh, another New York state official whose position escapes me were all involved. Could that be another reason why maybe we shouldn't use government as a means by which to legislate morality to the public? That they may not be the most virtuous people to accomplish that. Well, who's, who's to say that you have a right to your kidneys? That's a good point. <laughs> you know, if we don't believe All there's any absolute your truth, kidneys, go to the go to the local government station and well, surrender your kidneys at once. You know, the good thing, whoever gets mine gets some old kidney stones along with it. Yep, I'll have the last laugh. You could have while I'm sitting there in that. I'm sitting there in that that uh, bathtub full of ice in the hotel room yep. you know, after they've cut them out. <laughs> They're like, oh, it's useless. Yeah. Hey. Uh, <clears throat> you use it as a baby rattle. I was going to mention about uh, Prozac uh, could help in the battle with ca- with cancer, which is another. Wow. They're trying to find anything that's, uh, you know, mind-altering to find some use for it. Uh, yeah, did you hear? Help in pro- traffic tickets. Did, did you hear about, uh, now, this is going to be old news to everybody listening here, yeah. but I guess you heard they found Noah's Ark today. They went up there and took pictures of it on Mount Ararat. No, what? Yeah, this is uh, you know I I wasn't going to read it because it's old news to everybody. But in case somebody no. was in a cave and missed it, like Tom um, Bionic, the re- the remains of uh, this was reported in the Sun uh, newspapers on Drudge even. The remains of Noah's Ark have been discovered thirteen thousand feet up at Turkish Mountain. Uh, and there's pictures of it. It shows them inside. They're showing the wood. Uh, a group of Chinese and Turkish evangelical explorers said so they found the wooden remains on Mount Ararat. Carbon dating proves the relics are 4,800 years old around the time the ark was said to float. Uh, one of the guys uh, from Noah's Ark Ministries International team said, it's not 100% sure it's Noah's Ark, but we think it's 99.9% sure it is. Wow, that and, guy's pretty bold. Yeah, it contains several compartments, some with wooden beams, uh, let's see, that they believe were to house animals. Um, it's up at 13,000 feet. Yeah, I know we got to go here. 
the Turkish officials were going to ask the central government of Ankara to apply for UNESCO World Heritage status so the site can be protected while a major archaeological dig is done. Now, see, I've always been interested in that. In some of the more scholarly research I've read, there's another another mountain called Ararat that exists over in yeah. Iran that people have repeatedly said, no, no, this turkey thing is all wrong. It's yeah, well, you must be wrong because they just found it. They just so, found it. So, yeah. Yeah. Sorry they're for the Iranian of, people. Sort of they're a really, nail in my coffin. They're sort of bummed about yeah, that. Ararat being I had a good Lifeway story about kids drifting away from church, but that, we'll have to hold on that one, the CIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the end of the show. Oh, man. Another different, strange future mm-hmm. quake week. Yeah. We've got a great guest next week, yeah. uh, someone else sort of in this kind of vein. So please come back, listeners. Send us emails. Let us know what you think. Oh, Merv, tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. I almost forgot that. Now we really got to go. Okay, that's good. Any last words? No. Uh, Come back next week. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, 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 quake.